Welcome to this edition of the Not So Common Podcast. My name is Pat Contry, and my guest this time out is the esteemed YouTuber Boogie2988, Stephen Williams. Welcome, Boogie. Hi. Or Steven. What's up, Pat? Uh, yeah, everybody actually knows me as Boogie, even in real life. Everybody knows me as Boogie, local gaming store and all those places. How do you it's- get a nickname like Boogie? How does that come about? Besides people seeing you pick your nose. I mean, how does that actually happen? Okay, that's actually that's pretty much what it was. I, I moved to Fayetteville after a very tumultuous time in the state of Virginia where I grew up, the southwestern part of Virginia. And I was playing Magic in this huge multiplayer Magic game. And uh, this guy sitting across from me goes, um, hey, Boogie. And I'm, I'm like, what? Because you, you with a booger in your nose. And I said, what? Because you got this giant booger in your nose right now. And it's literally got fleas dangling off of it. They're bungee jumping off the thing. And we've been staring at you this whole time. Every time it's your turn, we're like, when's that booger going to fall out? And uh, I'm like, I don't know, man. I'm just going to leave it there. It's cool. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, please don't. And I'm like, all right. Well, anyway, that was my friend Ed. And then uh, Ed, every time he saw me, he called me Boogie. And I was so interested in getting, like, I don't know, belonging to that community and so interested in, like, reinventing myself anyway. Uh, I was like, all right, call me Boogie. That's fine. I don't give a shit. And so I I introduced myself as Boogie uh, to the Magic community and just thought it was cute and funny. And then that stuck. And then everybody always asks about the 2988 at the end of my uh, uh, name when I was trying to sign up for Boogie at Yahoo.com when, like, Yahoo service email went live. Um it said, well, you can't have that, but would you like this boogie with four random numbers? And so I just picked those four. I was like, okay. And so when I created my YouTube account, I just used that email, and it was boogie two ninety eight. It was my you, I didn't think I was going to do anything with YouTube. I didn't have any clue. It's not, it's not a terrible random number. But I have another number for everyone out there who's not familiar. 4.2 million. That's the number of subscribers you have. Boogie. Ooh. Hey, now that's, keep in mind, this is a, I a lot. Have a, I have a legacy account, so most of those guys are <laughs> dead, okay? I, you know, I don't get 4.2 million views per video or anything close to it, but uh, I, I've had a lot of people click that subscribe button over the years. It's pretty awesome. I, I, I'm pretty lucky. You started fairly early. Was it 2006? Well, I created the account in t- this particular account in 2007. And then I didn't really upload much of anything until something stupid, like just like this video of me dancing to promiscuous girl or something like that. I think maybe that was 2006. But then uh, I didn't really like treat treat it like the channel that it is today until 2009. Really, I think it was 2008. Ray William Johnson saw one of my Francis videos, like first time I ever did it. And he gave me a big, big shout out, and uh, that got me up to like ten thousand subs, which was—I mean, even then, that was a lot, man. That was insane. Ten thousand subs. I always talk to people about YouTube subscribers as inflation, like how money was in the eighties. First, right, well, right, right. Getting ten thousand subscribers before two thousand ten was like gigantic. Yeah, I was, not, about, not many people had that, and that got me—you know—I mean, two or three thousand views per video, which was amazing at the time. Especially, you know, I mean, there's still people on the website pulling in two hundred, three hundred thousand views per upload. That's what Ray was getting. You know, but I mean, I was just so happy to have an audience of people that gave a crap. Um, but I'll tell you, my fu- one of my favorite YouTube stories is in 2009 or 2008, I think, I uploaded a video with this optical illusion. And it had like um, just like this GIF, and I put music over it, Kevin McLeod music. Thanks, Kevin McLeod, for offering all that free music all these years. Kevin McLeod's legacy is going to be like Mozart 100 years from now. And they actually they filmed <laughs> a, uh, a documentary about him, and I'm actually in the documentary. I did an interview for him. I hope they put it in the film. It's just talking about how amazing and instrumental Kevin McLeod was to helping build my business. I talked to him once. I sent him like a donation of like 200 bucks for all the year music I've used. And uh, I was like, hey, man, I hope that helps. And he, he's like, Oh, it's not a big deal. I actually do really well for myself. And so I didn't realize 
but he's made millions giving away music. He's a fascinating case study. People, you should watch the documentary when it comes out. I hope a minute. But he's made millions of dollars giving away his music. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you hear so much of, of his tunes being even reused. Like, hey, that's that one song you've heard used 14 right, times right. before. Uh, but even that, like theme parks pick him up and, and, and like all over the world, his music is all over the world. And then those people will pay him royalties that it's free music, but they'll still pay him anyway. So he found he touched upon a formula where almost like a tip jar version of royalty where it's like, oh, use my music, exactly. but pay whatever you want. And some right. companies are like, hey, we would have paid a hell of a lot more anyway, so let's just give them some money. Exactly. That's exactly what it comes down to, and it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Uh, but anyway, um, so the YouTube Partner Program, right after that video went viral, and I say viral, I mean like 10,000 views or whatever, but uh, I think it's got 2 million views now these days. It's one of my highest viewed videos actually still. But uh, they sent me an email asking me to apply for the Partner Program, and I thought I was getting fished. So I could have, <laughs> I think I could have joined the partner program as early as like 2007, 2008. Uh, but I ignored it for over a year until like 2009 and realized there was actual money to be had. And that was when they hand selected channels. Of yep, partner. That was before exactly. MCNs. That's when there was such a limited number of, of partners. And that was because you think because of the Ray William Johnson shout out. Do you remember what the Francis video was that you did that got the attention? Yeah, what it's, you speaking it, about? it's actually funny. So I was uh, a part, part owner in a local gaming store. Um, my friend John oh. had run it and it was called gallery of champions for those Fayetteville natives. Uh, I've missed that man every day, but, uh, he's, his wife sold that to a guy named Chris Curley. And I, I put a little bit of money into the shop, not much. Um, and I was also working down there a little bit. Well, before I put money in it, I was volunteering down there and sorting magic cards in exchange for product and stuff. And, uh, I was complaining about D and D fourth edition, which had just come out. And everyone that played that game was, like, super serious about it, right? And uh, they all sounded like nerds because the people that go to local gaming stores, they tend to be nerds. I'm a nerd. I'm not making fun of anybody here. I love nerds. Nerds are my favorite people. But uh, one guy there uh, by the name of Casey, great guy, he had a, a bit of a speech impediment, and he loved to joke about it. And he was always kind of mean to me, so I was always kind of mean to him. He'd be like, I can't believe how fucking fat you are. Look how fat you are. It's a, let me see if I can do his voice. He's like, I can't believe how fat you are. You're so fat. And I'm like, well, at least I can talk like I don't have a mouthful of shit, Casey. <laughs> and uh, uh, one day I'm making fun of him and I'm making fun of all the D&D customers. And I do like a, the Francis voice for the first time. And I'm like, I can't believe that DM put bullywugs in the swamp of sorrow. You can't put bullywugs in the swamp of fucking sorrow in a sentient game. You made me use my heel potion. I need my heel potion for the dragon. You know, and, and my, my boss, uh, the, the guy who was on the shop, Chris Curley, looks at me and goes, now that's what you ought to put on YouTube. So I came home and I did that video and nobody gave a shit. It wasn't funny. Uh, but then my roommate's World of Warcraft account got hacked. And um, he was complaining about it. It was such a pain in the ass to get your account back. I made a video voicing his frustrations. And that's the one Ray saw and he thought it was real at first and then realized I was acting. And like I ripped up in my shirt and stuff and... Uh, boom. Yeah. Overnight, uh, I went from like a thousand subs to 10,000 subs and that get me really thinking I might have something there. Wasn't that an interesting time of YouTube where a content creator versus their persona in a video was really, the lines were very blurred. Yeah. James Rolfe doing AVGN. It was, it probably took about a good four or five years for, for people to realize that's just an act. That's right. not who you really are in front of the screen. <laughs> the audience was not yet matured enough to realize that right. it's similar to anything else like 
acting in a movie or a play right. or on TV. So, have, so you, have you encountered that in your life, where people thought, "Hey, this is you're just like Francis"? Well, I had uh, I, I I had this decision to make when that Francis video went viral, um, and it's the same decision that you know James Rolfe or Joji over there at uh, you know uh, oh, what's who's the guy. Uh, Filthy Frank, right? Um, to decide whether or not just to be the character on YouTube or to be both. And I wanted to be both. I wanted to be open and honest. I I felt like uh, the Francis character was always just going to be a sketch to me. And I wanted to be like, I wanted to be famous. I didn't want my character to be famous. Um, and I wanted, more importantly, to talk about the stuff that I wanted to talk about. The, the suicidal tendencies and the emotional stuff that I was going through. The, the physical stuff that I was going through. What it's like to be morbidly obese and live that life and be miserable and broken and the abuse I went through. And that seems so much more important to me. So I think I probably, I don't know if, if I, I don't know if I would have gotten lucky. I would have had a chance to get lucky like a lot of the original people like Fred who only played the character, you know. Um, but I feel like I'm way more successful than I should have been, and I'm glad that I went the path that I did. Uh, but yeah, I think I could have easily deleted all evidence the same way Joji did, uh, Filthy Frank did, and just be the character on YouTube. But I'm really glad I didn't. So yeah. you weighed the pros and cons of being a real person for everyone because you said right. you, could, you could share your issues, the problems you were facing in your life. Was that a difficult step to make to put yourself out there say, oh, here I am, warts and all? Depression, weight issues. Well, and people I, just take more shots at me, or you're thinking, "Hey, if I help out a few people, then it's worth it." Well, my self-esteem was so bad when I started YouTube, as, especially because I, I went into it right after this uh, bad breakup. I went into it thinking, um, "I just want to be a bad example. I want to show because I my I was on disability." I had not been able to work for many, many years. I had built a small business that I ran into the ground so that I could play EverQuest and then World of Warcraft like a job, you know? And then I, I, I eat myself to 500, 600 pounds. I think my biggest ever was 580 pounds, you know? And I, I, I just wanted to serve as a bad example for people. And I wanted to talk about the mistakes I made and how I got to that point and not to make those mistakes and encourage people not to do it. And I'd never thought that I could ever serve as a positive example. And I think sometimes now I do, especially now that I've gotten my life a little bit in order. But uh, for me, it was therapeutic. Like, I guess, it, you know, there's no such thing as altruism is what they say. And, and I think that's true here. I didn't do it for self-sacrificing reasons. I did it because I wanted to get that shit out in the world. I wanted to validate myself. I wanted to get that, some of that pain and poison out of my heart and my head. And, and hopefully find somebody out there that could connect with it, which led to my wife, you know, by the way. Uh, a lot of people don't know that, but, I, you know, I, met, I talked to my wife for the very first time when she saw a YouTube video in January of 2010. This is back when I had, like, 10,000 subs. I, I, w I was finally partnered, but I was only earning, like, $110 a month from the partner program. I was on disability. But I talked about the death of my mom, who died in October of 2009, and she had just lost her best friend to suicide. Um, and she had lost her brother a few years before that to an overdose. And so she reached out to me asking how I was dealing with it and, and, and was just looking for someone to share that pain with. And so it did exactly that. And, you know, now we've been married for four years. And so the best thing that ever happened to me happened because I opened myself up to, uh, to, to the world. And I'm so glad I did. And every good thing that's ever happened to me has happened because of that decision. Uh, you know, the house I live in, the, the, you know, obviously the money I've made, the success that I've had, uh, the career getting to fly to New York and LA, these are places I would have never been had I just been Francis, I think, you know, I would have never got to do any of the things.
So, so the ailments, both mental and physical, that you've gone through have, in a weird way, led to success that you currently have. Exactly. Yeah. There was right. there was an outlet that you sought, getting yourself out there, sharing your experiences. Do you recall, or you probably remember, like why why you put on the weight at the time? Was it depression, or was it just that you're in a bad spot? Because when I was in college, I know exactly. I put on, I think it was between end of freshman and sophomore year. Uh, I tore my ACL, so I couldn't walk as much. Um, I, I was feeling depressed about a few decisions in my personal life. And I, I, when I play a lot of video games, I, I played a lot of like rogue spear on the PC, you know, I played right. a lot of stuff like that. And I just, the weight just came on easily, uh, at that time. I will say that what I'm about to say right now, I'm going to list a list of reasons that I got fat, but I want to make sure it's very clear to anybody listening. They are not excuses. There is no excuse for what I did to my body. There is no excuse for, there's nothing. What I did to my body is not forgivable, and I will never forgive myself for it. And I don't expect anybody else to either, okay? That said, <laughs> um, for, for me, I was getting very, very large even before I was in control of what I was eating. My mother, at my, on my 25th birthday, sat across from me and said, uh, I'm so sorry. And I said, sorry for what? She says, I'm sorry because I fed you wrong on purpose. And I'm like, what? And she says, I did it because I, I, you, you showed this desire for food. I used to steal butter out of the fridge and eat sticks of butter. That's how bad I was. When you were a child. When I was a child. And um, she said uh, she fought me and fought me and fought me on it, but saw an opportunity there to keep me there. And so she's like, if I knew if you got fat enough, maybe I would need to take care of you. Maybe you would never leave the house. Maybe you would never meet a girl, and I, would, I wouldn't have to be alone. And I'm like, wow, okay, that's crazy, right? And so there are all these conversations that I would have with mom as a kid, and I'd be like, why don't we eat the way people do on TV? You know, they're, they're always eating salads and stuff when we watch the Cosby show. Why do we eat so much worse than they do on TV? And she'd say stuff like, well, th th they're just putting on airs. That's not how people actually eat. All your friends eat this way too. And I'm like, no, they don't though. That's the thing. You know, I've been to their houses sometimes. Sometimes they don't, you know, I didn't have very many friends and I was very rarely at somebody else's house, but most of the time they were eating a hell of a lot better than we were. They weren't drinking five and six sodas a day. They weren't eating little Debbie snack cakes in between meals. They weren't eating pure garbage like we did, you know, and, and my mom encouraged it. And so, you know, so she created a food codependency to keep you close. Right. To and hold then, on right. to you. And then it got even, it, it was even more systematic than that because she would, uh, Oh, uh, she, like me, had an anxiety disorder. I didn't realize that as a kid, but I realize it now looking back. Um, and not only that, but she was bipolar. And so she was like all kinds of messed up. Sure. Um, and sometimes I wonder borderline schizophrenic based on some of the things that she said, but she was never fully diagnosed. Yeah. Uh, that said, she um, was mentally abusive, physically abusive. And I very rarely ever talk about this, but there was some sexual misconduct that definitely took place as well. So... Uh, <laughs> One of the ways that she would compensate for her issues is she would explode all over the place. She would hit me in the head with a hammer, but then take me out for pizza later. And she's like, well, let's go have some fun. Let's, I want to make up for what happened. Can we go and get food? Can we go to, uh, you know, showbiz pizza and, and let's, you know, or a Chuck E. Cheese, because you probably know it's Chuck E. Cheese, but can yeah. we go? And uh, sure, obviously, I would like anything good to happen in my life. But most of the time, I'd just be like, I don't really care. I just... You hit me with a hammer, lady. I just, I'm bleeding. I just don't want to bleed, you know. But uh, but that was one of the ways that she would do is she would try to repair the damage she did with food because she knew I liked food. It's one of the very few things I liked. Food and video games. And thankfully, she also encouraged the video game aspect of life, which gave me this escape. It kept me alive through my darkest hours. World of Warcraft and EverQuest, I think, saved my life. That said, 
you know, when I became an adult, um, I continued to eat myself to death because I was fucking miserable. I just, I didn't want to live, man. I, a 20 year old me was so messed up and I, I, I had my heart broken through the very first girl I ever dated. And I didn't think I was ever going to date again. I certainly didn't think I'd ever marry somebody who loved me. I didn't think, uh, I, I didn't think, I thought I was, I, I was going to be an incel for the rest of my life, an involuntary celibate. I thought, um, that I was going to never be able to have relationships, never be able to make friends. And, you know, I would just eat and eat and eat because it was fun. It helped me cope with the pain. And when a doctor would tell me I was killing myself, I'd say, good. They'd say, you'd be dead. By, you're going to be dead by 30 the way you're eating. I'm like, if I eat more, can I be dead by 25? That'd be way better. You know, uh, how do you know? Because I wasn't I wasn't strong or weak enough to take my own life. But I was strong enough to eat, you know, or weak enough to eat, you know. So when you suffered all this abuse at the hand, hands of your mother, did you were you able to seek help? Did other people notice what was going on in the household? Did they um, ask questions? I wrote a teacher on Facebook um, who was taught at my school. And I asked her one day, just straight up, I sent her a message after friending her, and I said, did you know what was happening in my home? And she didn't respond for about three weeks. She logged into Facebook all the time, but she didn't respond. Uh, but at the end of that three weeks, she, I, I thought I put her on the spot, so I did not Want anything? You know, I asked, this, this was why. after you were. Yeah, this is this is literally three years ago, and uh, so I she finally wrote me back and she said, "Yes, we knew what was going on. We didn't think it was as bad as we now know it was. Uh, but your mother was a very volatile person, and we thought that if we intervened, she might kill you or worse. I don't know what's worse than killing me." <sighs> Uh, but she, right, and she's like, so we did the best we could by trying to create a happy environment for you at school and outside of your home. And if we ever knew it was as bad as it was, we would have intervened. And so, my brother knew, um, and my sister knew, but they again did not know. They dealt with a fraction of what I dealt with. A fraction. My sister got a lot more stuff from my dad than I did. She got some very inappropriate behavior from him, if you can imagine, fill in the gaps what I'm talking about there. Um, and I, obviously, my dad, I, did, I barely knew him. But uh, my brother, he was kind of protected by my dad and my grandfather, and he had that. So he dealt with way less. And, but I, I don't blame either of them because they had their own lives to lead. They were adults long before I was. Um, and they would call in and check on me. Brian would take me up to Blacksburg, Virginia. I played gauntlet for the very first time in the arcade right there on the, on campus. It was wonderful, you know? Um, and he did his best, but he really didn't know what I was going through and he wasn't in a place to help. He had his own life to, to figure out, you know? And he did eventually help. My brother did, uh, when I was 20, he, he's the reason I moved to Arkansas. He was teaching down here and he, he opened up his home to me and helped me get established here. And, and I've lived in this town ever since. I've been very happy since. So it's good that you've come together closer with your your brother what happened to your mother did she get help at some point um well you know the weirdest part about her was the dichotomy of her and so she taught head start professionally and got teacher of the year some seven times out of her 23 years teaching in the state of virginia she was an incredible teacher and a wonderful child advocate um, she made up for the damage she did to me tenfold, a hundredfold by getting children out of abusive situations, getting parents off of welfare and getting them to go back to college, um, helping them get GI grants, helping some of the kids that she taught go to college and graduate. Uh, the, the, the incredible, incredible things that she did outside of her home 
made it almost impossible to believe that she was capable of doing the things that she did to me. And in fact, I actually had a therapist once tell me after going through the first session and telling them everything, the therapist set her notebook down and says, why do you feel the need to lie to me? And I said, what? And she goes, I know your mother. She's not capable of these things. And so it, it, just this bizarre dichotomy, it's it almost as if it only existed in our head, my brother's head, my head, my sister's head. Uh, and I guess my father, too, who, God, the things she did to that man, <laughs> the things she did to that, she just took him apart like a, just like it was a science experiment, like a cadaver, man, over years and years and years and years. She killed that man. I mean, just you mean mentally she, just picked him apart. Right. But even physically, he died of oh, cancer. Really? He weighed 78 pounds or something like that when he died of cancer. He was an alcoholic. He drank himself to death. It just, the things that <laughs> just the systematic abuse that he endured at her hands and the things that did to him just ruined him. She forced him to drink or was, was Oh, no, he, 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 was, he was, he was drinking when he was 12 years old. He was, okay. he, yeah, he was, he was moonshining. He was bootlegged moonshine. Oh, when he was moonshine. Like, as a teenager, yeah. Uh, so I mean, he was naturally going to do it, but he just she fostered it in him and used it as a you know a codependency the way she did uh, food with me. But anyway, you know, at the end of the day, those are the reasons I got so big, and those are the reasons I made those decisions. They're not excuses. I had to do better. I should have done better. And I'm, I'm disappointed that I didn't. But I'm doing better now. Uh, a lot of viewers don't know, but I got gastric bypass in uh, on August first of this last year. Um, I've lost since the surgery, 70 pounds. Um, and then prior to the surgery, I had to lose about 50 pounds to, to get the surgery. And so we're looking at a little over 110 some pounds total. I guess that adds up to 120. So it's a little less than that, but, um, and that's, I'm at the three month mark and I'm down 120 pounds from where I started. So, um, that's fantastic. my doctor told me to expect between five to 10 pounds of weight loss a month from here on out for the next year and year and a half. Um, I'm hoping it'll be more than that. I'm really pushing it to try to be more than that. Um, uh, but I should lose, uh, within the next year, another 120, 150 pounds. Yeah, we'll definitely touch on that again. I'd like to get back to this though, because it's really interesting to me that, uh, the abuse you suffered and you've oh, yeah. been, you've done very well to come to terms with it. Did your mother ever come to terms with what she did? Did she ever face it head on and admit uh, to her behavior? We tried to talk about it uh, a few times. I was, I always, I always wanted to be in the role of the good son. I always want to, I always want to please people. That's something that's a big flaw of mine. And I always want to try to like help people. And so I really wanted to help my mom as best I could. I drew lines. Like at some point she wanted me to move back home and I told her no. Uh, and sometimes she would want me to like, uh, you know, help take care of her. And I couldn't, I knew I couldn't. So I didn't, um, stuff like that. But you know, when it came to like going home for Christmas, I went home every year. My brothers and my sisters didn't, but my brother's sister didn't, but I did. I'd go home for my birthday too in the summer. So I'd visit her twice a year, stay with her for a week and spend some time with her. And I was there when she died. Um, and sometimes we would talk about it but for the most part, the abuse continued, um, never physically after I turned 18. Um, you, I mean, occasionally I'd visit and she'd chuck something at my head or something like that, or she slapped me or something like that, but nothing. I mean, I was you know, tw three times her size. So what what are you going to do to me? Right. Um, and she tried her best to make up for it, you know, but she was still really just horribly miserable and horribly broken. Um, but on her deathbed, uh, I, you know, they called me and told me she was dying and I went there and I, I stayed with her for the last three days before she died. And I only, she was in a, a medically induced coma for the last few days. I think it might've been more than three days. I'm not sure exactly how long it was, but, uh, before they put her in the medically induced coma, um, I had a chance to speak with her and she said something that stuck with me ever since she looked at me and she says, I'm sorry. And I said, I'm sorry for what? And she says, I ruined your life. And I said, no, 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 you didn't. I said, I like me, mom. Don't you like me? And she goes, I love you. 
And I said, well, you know, because of the things we went through, I became the person I am and I'm happy with me. And I think you should be happy with me too. And she says, I am. And then that's it. And then she cried for my brother and kept asking where my brother was. And I kept telling her, she's not coming. He's not coming. He's not going to come. And he never did. You know, he wasn't able to make it. He wasn't able to make it. Yeah. So, but, uh, that's the closest to reconciliation we got, but it meant a lot. I mean, it meant a lot, you know, to hear her say that. So it was, it was really funny because the, the way she died in the last few days that I spent with her was like out of a movie. It really was like, I couldn't have scripted it better. I couldn't have, you know, there's nothing to embellish there because it was perfect. It was just exactly got the closure you wanted. And then, but it was just as heart wrenching as you can imagine. And, you know, they called me the night that she was dying and they're like, your mother's dying. There's nothing we can do to help her. We're going to give her some morphine to help her along and keep her comfortable. If you want to be here while we do that, we'd like you to come down. And I was like staying at the hospice, or the uh, uh, hospitality place at the uh, at the hospital there in uh, Abingdon or Bristol, Virginia. And uh, so I came down and they gave her morphine and turned off the machines and I held her hand until she died. And so even and- at the end, you you couldn't feel any anger towards this person. You only can feel, oh, well, 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 I might be the angriest person, you know, Francis is not just a character. He is kind of that part of me that's real broken, you know? Um, and I'm, I'm angry about life and I'm angry at like the situation, but I was never really angry at her, um, because she was as much a victim as I was, uh, her parents did all kinds of terrible things to her. She was, uh, sexually molested by two different uncles, you know, raped by two different uncles. And I had just... And it just messed her up for life. And she tried really hard. And, you know, she's like such a good person. She did so many good things. And so it's it's hard to – my brother and my sister – my sister kind of idolized her for a while. But – and I think maybe still does. My brother kind of sees her as, as pretty awful. Um, but for the most part, I think he sees her as a, 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 a starting to see her more the way I see her. I've always saw her as a, a person who had the deck stacked against her but did as as good as she could with it. And honestly did better than most people can with a, a, a deck stacked in their favor, you know? And so, yeah, she fucked me up bad and some of it was straight up on purpose, but it's hard to be that upset about it. You know, it doesn't matter cause I'm going to die one day anyway, and it'll all be over. So it doesn't, you know, the earth will fall into the sun. I'm a nihilist. So embracing the, my nihilism made it a lot easier. <laughs> you know, no, one I would does, say, I, I feel if you've handled this better than probably 99% of people, could probably handle it. I can't picture someone that had probably could have handled uh, systematic abuse to the extent you have. Um, I wonder, I, this is me just thinking out loud. I wonder if your mother doing so much good work for other children and people that were disadvantaged and needed help was her own sort of penance versus the bad behavior at home. Or maybe that was her way to, maybe that was her taking it in and then expelling it, the darkness back out to others. I don't know. I, I'll t- I tell you that both me and my brother have done something very similar. And I don't think I've done a fraction of what my mother has done. I don't think I've done a fraction of what my brother has done. But I will still counsel fans from time to time who need help with uh, their, their weight issues or their family issues, their depression issues, their suicidal thoughts. And, and I've helped with uh, you know putting out that positive message out there. My, my brother, you know, he worked at the CDC for many years. He, uh, he's one of the reasons you can't get lead toys here in, in America anymore, lead-painted toys, is he's active on that. He's written grants that have helped cure diseases. Uh, you know, and and no, there's no, like I said earlier, there's no such thing as altruism. Nobody does this uh, t- other than to please themselves. Nobody does anything other than to please themselves. But we have this innate drive in us that say 
We have to help. We have to do better. We have to do good. It's what helps me and my brother and my mother sleep at night. And so maybe it is partially penance because I, I certainly – I did my – I was a <laughs> teenage shit lord on the internet you know, for a long time. Maybe I'm making up for that part of it. Or, oh, know, really? Yeah. I, what did you do that was bad on the internet? Back, oh, back? man. I hate – you know, God, I even hate this to talk about. <laughs> back when 4chan was brand new – uh, in the pre-boxy days, I was very active there, and I would read like other awful websites that showed like people dying and stuff, and like I would look at all the really messed up stuff on the internet. Nothing like illegal, I, and I was never in, into anything like that. But uh, but just like you know, road accidents or you know, war footage and stuff like that, I was fascinated with it. And uh, Tub Girl, like I would post pictures of Tub Girl on Christian message boards to troll people. Or oh, wow. I would like play uh, online games, Warcraft 3, and I would like just type shitty things in the chat. And, uh, and that persisted right up to like even when I was playing League of Legends, sometimes I would pretend to be Korean in League of Legends to upset people and just troll people. You know, And, and I, I mean – That was your way of lashing right. out to get some of the anger out? Right. And I've never doxed anybody. I've never sent a box of shit to anybody's house i've never sent a death threat i've never done a personal attack what people consider to be trolling these days i consider to be illicit illegal fucking activity you pricks trolling back in the day used to be more about saying nonsensical things or maybe inflammatory things or 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 you know maybe like the, probably the worst thing i ever did is posting pictures of tub girl in a place where it doesn't <laughs> belong don't google that if you've never seen it you don't want to see it by the way um, I, I've always been afraid to. I've heard it forever, and I'm always like, oh, I don't want to. It's touch really that. awful. It's really awful. Yeah. It's no. It's I, there's a I, lot. There's much worse out there. But, uh, but you know. But again, I still regret that. You know, I wish I didn't do that. You know. And that was until like, I guess until like your mid twenties, about late twenties. Oh, geez, really? All right, it was in my thirties, really. Oh, in your thirties? Yeah, oh. I was in my thirties. It took so. you longer to grow up than. All right. than... <laughs> but it, but again, it was. But again, it was never what these kids do today. It's not swatting somebody. It wasn't like you know attacking some woman for showing her boobs on the internet. It was more just like. Just it was more, it was more clean hearted fun more clean hearted fun yeah as clean hearted as tub girl as tub girl be right exactly <laughs> you know uh, but I still regret it I what, mean I'm I'm making excuses I wish well, I had what done what it. got you past that over that trolling hump where you figured okay maybe it's not the best use of my time and energy to screw with other people online what was the was there a defining moment or you just said I'm getting too old for this or this really is sort of pointless I think I just kind of grew out of it really you know grew out of it. um you know I mean I would type in just silly things into EverQuest. Inflammatory things in EverQuest, uh, sometimes offensive humor. You know, I really was attracted to offensive humor for a long time. Edgy um, humor. Right, edgy humor, right. Uh, and then yeah, uh, World of Warcraft, I did a lot less of it, uh, but this still did it occasionally. And uh, by the time I was done with World of Warcraft, I, I was done with that. I was just like, yeah, I don't know. This just didn't really feel right anymore. You know, until I started playing League of Legends, and that had the worst toxic community I'd ever been part of. And so, like I'm talking, I started playing League of Legends right as it came out of beta. And I just, oh, God, the people there were just miserable, miserable monsters. And I was like, these people deserve a little bit of tomfoolery. These people deserve a little bit of nonsense in their lives. So I, here's what I would do. Here's my, here's my League of Legends stuff. I would log in, and I would, I would say, good luck, have fun. Me Korea, smiley face. And most of the time, everyone would just ignore that, and I would just play the game. But every once in a while, somebody would go, oh, are you from Korea? And i go, yeah, me Korea. And they would say, oh, that's cool, man. And then, again, I would just play the game. But every th second or third game, 
somebody be like, go back to your fucking servers, you filthy fucking animal piece of shit, motherfucker. And I, <laughs> I would like start typing in, well, at least we have healthcare, fat America. Oh, you big fat America. Eat another fat cheeseburger, you fat America. Oh, you cannot afford health care. Oh, that's why you play free game because you can't afford real game, fat America. You know? And I don't know. Just, just When I find that one racist, bigoted piece of shit, I would just ruin the game for everybody. I don't know why I was like that, Bob. Did you uh, – obviously, well, obviously or not, you're from the South. Did you grow up with a lot of racism around you? Did you see it a lot everyday life? I, 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 yeah, a lot, a lot. And I'll tell you this, uh, and I, I, I don't even know if I should admit this, but when I was 10, 12, 13, um, you know, my mom had some uh, – uh, this family, uh, uh, a friend that's part of this big family of people who are African-American. And they all – to drugs and they were in and out of jail all the time and having a lot of financial trouble and uh, very sexually promiscuous and a lot of negative qualities in that family. And they were the only black family in a 500 mile radius. And so it was very easy to associate the negative things that I saw it, with that family. And my mother was doing me no favors because she would reinforce that stuff. Fortunately, I did watch a lot of television and I began to question that stuff because of things like the Cosby show and stuff. I'd be like, I don't know. I don't think every black family is like that. My mom would tell me all the time. No, 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 no. That's just, that's just, you know, they, that's just one group of families. That's, that's bullshit. That's not how it actually is. And, um, well, anyway, my mom started dating a member of that family wow. and that kind of really shook things up, but it wasn't until I went to upward bound, uh, he, I have a story about the first the, the black guy she was dating. It's after my dad got sick, so she waited the appropriate amount of time, I think. Um, but she started dating this guy, and we're talking 1984 because Legend of Zelda was on the shelf, and I really wanted to own that game, but Mom couldn't afford it. That would be so, 87. Is that 87? So uh, we saw it in Hills, and I would just sit there as a little chain store uh, in the south, and I would stare at the cartridge. And I stare at the box. And I'm like, man, I can't wait to play this game. I had borrowed my friends for like two days, but that's not enough to do anything in it. And I'm like, one of these days I'll own this game. And he saw me do that, and he was trying to win my favor, so he shoplifted it for me. Oh, that his heart was in the right. Place. Yeah, he came. He came out to the car and pulled it out <laughs> of his pants in front of me because I got this for you, kid. And I'm like, oh my god, I like your new boyfriend, mom. Well, oh any- <laughs> well, anyway, um, so I ended up going to this program called Upward Bound when I was 15. And I got assigned a roommate. Boy, I'm going to have to send him this video, too. I got assigned a uh, roommate by the name of K.M. Kermit was his name. Great guy. Um, and we ended up becoming friends. And I, I love that man to death to this day. But because my roommate was black, I was uncomfortable. And so he wanted to move in with his friend Delmer, who also had a Commodore 64 so they could play games together and hang out. Um, I did not object to that. In fact, I encouraged it because my roommate was black and it's because I didn't know what to expect. I had no clue, but I thought it was going to be difficult to connect with them or things along that lines. I mean, I was genuinely straight up racist. I, that was, that was the roast racist thing I'd ever done in my life. Even though upward bound was a program for kids that were like overachieving, right? So well, overachieving and underprivileged. And, so, uh, you know, and so a, a good third of that African, a, a good, a thir- uh, sorry, a good third of upper bound that year was African-American as it routinely was in our area. Um, uh, because those are often some of the most underprivileged people in our area. So anyway, uh, then I met his best friend, a girl by the name of Danielle DJ, and we ended up dating all summer. She's also uh, African-American 
And uh, between KM and Danielle, they taught me everything I knew was wrong and how fucking stupid I was. Yeah. And I felt like just so bad. And that's one of the reasons like people are always like, Boogie, you are too lenient on uh, racists. You're too lenient on, on Nazis. You're too lenient on people who are bigots. But that's the thing. I think that even... And I've read stories like this when, when the, the worst piece of garbage like Klan member meets the right person of color, they're going to change their mind. I genuinely believe that. It's you possible. Uh, it's not a guarantee. I mean, there's a story of, of the one African-American guy who's converted. I think he's gotten 40 Klan members out of the Klan. I forget. Right. Name. That's the guy I'm talking about. Exactly. And yeah. that's what I'm saying. I think I think most of the people that think that way are wrong, are genuinely wrong, it's, and they have a terrible misconception. And when given the opportunity, they will change their misperceptions. It's exposure therapy. It's right, familiarity. Exactly. The more exactly. the more you're exposed to something, the less fearful you are. The more you're familiar with it, the more you're accepting. Yep. That's just the way it is. Right. I, I mean, in my neighborhood, we only had one black family in, wow, probably within eight, nine, ten blocks. They were the nicest people on the planet. Um, right. It was a... Uh, uh, and plus they were they were Muslim as well the only only Muslims I knew like ever when I was a child so it was the the uh, husband and wife and six daughters and they were all like the best people so I guess I got lucky then as a child realized oh this is my first and, and regular exposure to African Americans and they right. were like a model family to me you know at the time right. I, I mean I probably was even jealous of their family versus mine in terms of the stuff they had and how nice they appeared to each right. other and right. I was probably jealous. Um, but if you don't, if you're not growing up with that at all, or your only exposure to African Americans is what you see on TV, say in the South, or or you have a a racist uncle, or it doesn't have to even be the South. There's racists all over. Northeasters, racist, Midwest, and California, they exist everywhere. And there's towns even 30 minutes away from me that are known for having Klan members in Southern right, California. Right, right. I've been right here in in uh, you know obviously I'm in uh, Arkansas. And so I'm just a few miles up from the birthing place of the Klan. I forget the name of the city, uh, but to this day they have a – you can Google it right now. Uh, they have a billboard that declares their city is all white and always will be as you come right. driving into the town. I forget what the name of that city is, but it's literally 40, mi- 40 minutes up the road. You know, and it's, it's, so it's really bizarre. I live in a very progressive area. Northwest Arkansas is very progressive. We're the home of Walmart home office and JB Hunt and Tyson headquarters and, and also like 1500, 1500 smaller businesses and a lot of money here and a lot of college towns is very, very open minded and progressive. It's really nice here. I think um, that's, uh, what's happening to a lot of places in the Midwest and in the South. They're becoming, you know, red versus blue. A lot of them coming more purple because a lot of the cities are, you know, in the cities, you have people from all over gravitate for jobs. Right, uh, tech tech jobs are coming to places. I think the, I think someplace uh, down south they just turned down having an Amazon warehouse there. I forget where it was. This happened oh, wow. a few weeks ago. Wow. So so companies, big companies, once they move into an area, they're going to attract people and more jobs, and people from all over will go there to save money, lower taxes. Like Texas is becoming more and more quote unquote purple. You know, some areas of, of Texas are extremely or very progressive, like Austin. Um, so you give it a matter of time, I think you're going to have a more of a mix. And then hopefully, you know, antiquated uh, feelings die out. Right, you, right. That's what that's what you hope. You hope would, it's just that the next generation is the last to think that way. You hope. Now, I will tell you that girl that um, I referred to, Danielle, we dated off and on for the next seven years. And she came from an abusive background as well. So it was always a very tumultuous time, you know. But we loved each other very, very deeply. And we were best of friends until she died at the age of 39 two years ago of uh, breast cancer. 
And, uh, you know, I, we, we, I mean, I spoke to her pretty much a couple of days before she died and, and we loved each other in a very special way, like more like family than any other way, I think. Um, but I got to spend a lot of time with her and I was, I, I will be frank. I, her family was very rude to me sometimes because of the color of my skin. And some of her family and friends were very rude to me because of the color of my skin. So uh, I would, I, and, and, and then more importantly, uh, the lesson I learned was that I saw how people would treat her firsthand. And sometimes it would be as something as simple as like watching her walk through a department store, following her. And, you know, they would never do that to me. And I, I allegedly shoplifted a lot more than she did as a teenager. But, uh, you know, um, but uh, but then you have, uh, like, one day we went to the Waffle House here in town. She was dating my friend Curtis. And uh, the, the guy at the desk refused to, the guy uh, t- cooking that day refused to take her order because, because of the color of her skin. Literally just told us. Wow. Like 1950s racist. Right. But like, and, and this is 1992, 93. And I just couldn't believe it. He's like, uh, he, he took my order, took her order, and then uh, took my order, took Curtis's order, and then refused to take hers. And then would only take her order if Curtis gave it to her. Uh, I don't know why. Wow. I don't know why. I can't imagine that. But that's how we felt, you know. And so, I don't know. I've always had, I've, I've been an equal rights card-carrying member for 30 years now, 40 years, you know. And I'm, and that's very uh, important to me. And I don't know. I, I Again, I, I, I still consider myself to be a pretty solid moderate when it comes to almost everything political and everything socially political. But at the end of the day, I'm very, you know, open to that concept because I've seen it not really firsthand because it didn't happen to me. It happened to her, you know. But I've seen it happen. And uh, now that I know, it sucks. You know? Well, treating, treating people the way they should be treated like humans is not political. That's just what you should be doing. You know, like that. I, I think we're at a state now in society where all of a sudden having empathy for others, the ability to put yourself in others' shoes and to react accordingly has been politicized for yeah, some reason. I, it's really weird to me. It, it's bizarre that. where to try to see, okay, Pete, these people, this group is having problems and let's see why that all of a sudden becomes a right versus left issue versus let's just try to treat people with respect and treat right. them correctly. And, and and that's one of the things I go through a lot. And it's so like one of the most frustrating things for me, I don't mind somebody accusing me of something that I am, you know, somebody says, Hey, you're fat. Oh yeah, I'm pretty fat. You're bad at video games. Oh, I'm pretty bad at video games. <laughs> you're, you're, you're kind of gross looking. No, I'm pretty gross looking. Uh, you know, any of that stuff that didn't bother me when somebody mislabels me though, it really frustrates me. One of the things that I get a lot is people think I'm not true to myself or they think that I'm trying to just say the popular thing or do the popular thing. And I don't think that way. I always speak my mind. The problem is my mind is fairly simple. As I said, I've embraced my nihilism 20 years ago. So as, as a result of that, I can't really get that involved in stuff. Right. And so I don't lean far left. I don't lean far right. I just kind of exist in this world and just kind of enjoy it. And there's things I'll stand up for, you know, I'm celebrating marriage equality passing in Australia today. I think that's wonderful. I think every person, if they love another person, should be able to have all of the rights that uh, that me and my wife have, have taken for granted over the last four years. You know what I'm saying? I, why not? If you if you want to do that to yourself <laughs> or you want to celebrate your love and you want to sign a, that social contract, why shouldn't you be allowed to? You and I ought to get married one day. That's what I'm saying. If you want to, we should be allowed to. I think that's okay. My but, sisters always My sisters always say, why should only straight people be miserable? Right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I'm pretty happy with my marriage, but <laughs> I don't know. I can't speak for my wife, but I enjoy it. <laughs> but uh, that's <laughs> um, 
but for the most part, I just not that worked up about stuff. And so I can't really join in on the politicism of the day. And everything is so polarized, so politicized. And I just like, I feel like an impartial observer about 98% of the things I enjoy. Even the video games, which is something I'm very passionate about. And I'm mad at the EA right now too, as we all should be, because they're ruining one of my favorite franchises. And not only that, but the publishing company has put their developers at a very bad place. But I'm not that worked up about it because I just won't play the game and it'll, it'll be okay. I'll just play something else instead. You know, it doesn't really, doesn't make me feel like I need to make 100 Reddit posts about it or 10,000 videos. It doesn't mean I feel like I need to make death threats to the developers. It doesn't mean like I have to make personal attacks on anybody at EA. It's like, oh, they're a shitty developer and they screwed up a game. Oh, well. Guess it's play. everything so polarized now, though, and you see these extreme voices, whether it's people reacting to DLC in a game, for example, with your recent tweets. Is that this is because social media allows the most extreme voices to be heard better than the more reasonable people. Oh, right. I mean, it also rewards it, right? You know, it rewards you, it. You, you get into these echo chambers and there's a few echo chambers I like, you know, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I, I, I think like uh, the Vlogbrothers, uh, I'm a huge fan of Hank Green, John Green, right? And they are uh, pretty left. Um Maybe not into cuck territory necessarily, but pretty left. The, the <laughs> you know, you know, right, as I think people might put it. Uh, but they're, they they lean pretty left in in a, in a way that I kind of admire sometimes. And it's so funny; their audience is very like minded people. Uh, but I think it's in a, a fairly good way, right? And some of the, my conservative friends from back home, uh, they are very like minded as well, and they're not they're not they're, they're not about hate. They're not about like taking apart the world. They're not about anything like that. They're about trying to make uh, their healthcare cost affordable and getting back to work, and you know uh, having our our country taxes less and spend less. And like when I hear that echo chamber, I'm like, you know, that's a good echo chamber because they're saying good things, right? And I I like that. What I worry about is the echo chambers that say, you know, punch a Nazi. And here's the thing. Punch a Nazi. If someone's actually wearing the swastika, right? Like punch that guy. Knock that guy down. I'm fine with that, okay? Uh, but what you define as a Nazi might be a little loose, and you might be punching people who don't deserve it. That's why I worry about. And but that echo chamber can be very, very damaging, very polarizing, right? And the same thing when it comes to, you know, hating on certain religions or certain people, uh, demographics or certain minorities or whatever. That echo chamber can be very, very dangerous, and that's the area that we're in now. And it becomes like the self-feeding flame that becomes a bonfire at some point. And then you have stuff like Charlottesville and you have you know, stuff like that happen because of that echo chamber and thinking you're right and thinking you're righteous and thinking you're doing the right thing. And that's why I preach moderation. And that's why I, 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 I not only say have a moderate message, but encourage other people to be moderate, to avoid those bonfires before this, con before this country burns down because of it. I just want to be able to clarify your statement about Charlottesville. Are you saying that? the counter-protesters should have been moderate and not have shown up to counter-protest the white nationalists or the white nationalists should not have shown up I, or I th everyone shouldn't have showed up. I think that everything about Charlottesville, in my personal opinion, is shameful. Just about everything about it. There's not a, not, not, I was not happy with the counter-protesters. I'm not happy with the protesters. I'm not happy with anything that happened there. There are probably a few people that walked in there who were like, you know what? I kind of like that statue. I like statues. Let's leave the statue. I, and and that, that those people, I probably don't have a problem with you, right? Uh, and I think there are maybe even a few more people are like, well, you know what? It's an unpopular opinion, but let's defend that unpopular thing. It's still freedom of speech. It's still freedom of expression. I think I'm okay with those people. But the people who went there angry, the people carrying the, those, those 
Nazi flags, the people that were there to incite anger and violence. And, and that's on both sides of things, too. You know, I, that, those are the people that really get me scratching my head. You know, I just it, it, it and then there are people who at the end of the day are doing some bad stuff, but don't realize what they're doing ain't great. You know, do you see any responsibility of, like you said, there might have been people that said, oh, I just don't see it's right to turn down or to turn down a flag of, of a Confederate general. I see that as the first slippery, slippery slope step towards eliminating history. Do you see there being an issue with those people once they're around people that start chanting anti-Jew statements and right, right, yeah, stuff? Like, they're, they're, they should at a, least at that point say, I'm out. This, right. this is too much. Right, right. And, that's, and that's the biggest thing. And I, I think that's a lot of people get – yeah, a lot of people get lumped in that don't really deserve to be. We saw that with Gamergate too, right? Um, boy, this video is getting so demonetized, huh? But we saw that with Gamergate too. There were a lot of people who were involved in Gamergate and they were worried about, um, they were worried about ethics and, in, in, in the way gaming was being reported on YouTube and, and, and on, on Twitch and on, and, and in journalism. And, and they were worried about, you know, that kind of stuff. And these are, these people weren't monsters. They were just worried about the industry. They, they worry about the hobby. They worry about the things they care about, but they got lumped in. We, we see right now again with the, this whole EA backlash, you've got a handful of people who are issuing personal attacks against the developers, a handful of people who are issuing death threats against these developers. And, and that is the headline today. It's not that EA screwed up. It's not that EA is anti-consumer. It's not that EA has ruined one of the best franchises in, 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 in entertainment history. That should be the message. But instead, EA is allowed to change the message because of these half uh, a small number of fools. And you see that in Charlottesville, too. You have a small number of fools there, and that becomes the message the media runs with. And the people that are, are who are standing aside, standing along bad people. And you shouldn't stand along. You shouldn't stand next to bad people. You should walk away from those people. When you see a, a swastika, you should probably just go, right? You should probably well, go Well, yeah. Home, I mean, right? but, I would say that if you feel the need to carry a tiki torch uh, and say we will not be replaced, uh, I don't want anything to do with that. Even right, exactly. Theoretically, exactly right. like a Robert E. Right. Lee statue. That's right. a bridge too far. I would right. say any reasonable person would get away from that unless right. they get caught up in sort of some weird frenzy. But that's, that's what anything. I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking yeah. about. That's what the echo chamber does. That's what the echo chamber does. The echo chamber takes someone who's very open-minded and very progressive and sometimes will get them to agree with doxing somebody they disagree with. That happened to me. I got doxed, not by 4chan, but by progressives. That happened to me. That's crazy that happened to me. But that happened to me. You know, but that's what the echo chamber does is you, you, it, you know, I don't know. It's scary. It's, it's, it's a scary I think, I think uh, tribalism and people seeing a zero sum, sum game when it comes to any sort of social or political argument is what it comes down to. And unfortunately, and I've seen this with some of my friends, um, some liberal friends, that it's almost like the ends justify the means. As long as you're on the right side, it doesn't matter how you get to the end result, which is obviously right. – there's, that's there, awful. There's you a, have to you have to have you have to have uh, um, the moral high ground in whatever side you're trying to position yourself as. You can't excuse your own misbehavior on your side, and uh, the same way you wouldn't excuse it on the other side. You have to hold yourself accountable. I think that's what is missing in a lot of our political discussions and sort of the what about is right, stuff. Where it's exactly. like, well, you know. Uh, the current president may have done some bad stuff. Oh, what about this other person that may have done bad stuff 25 years ago? And it's like, well, at some point, you just have to look at what's going on. 
All right, actually, without comparing John, someone else. John Oliver just did a, a piece uh, talking about the the whole whataboutism stuff, and it's fascinating. Oh yeah, it's been going it's been going on for at least a year, yeah. and this is the worst I've ever seen something like this. And it's where it's, it's like no one no one wants to be held accountable for someone sort of either a belief they have or a person in their own group they're trying to support. No one wants to be have any sort of uh, moral high ground. It doesn't right. matter anymore. All right, and that's. And and that's the thing, and and you see it on, on every aspect, you know. And that's what I try to steer people away from. That's so everything my message is about. You know, I certainly do not advocate uh, attacking a developer. I do not advocate personally attacking that person or, or, or issuing death threats or doing anything to make that person personally uncomfortable. But I don't know why. I don't know why we can't have a discussion about the game itself and about the issues they made and the choices they made. I don't know why I can't have that conversation with that developer. And I, I don't know, you know, but again, it's all about deflection. It's all about uh, po polarization. It's all about politici politicizing. It's all, uh, it's all about uh, the echo chamber. It's all about, and that's the world that we have now. And I don't want to be part of it. And I will never be part of it. And I will never be part of your echo chamber. I will always show both sides of an argument. And at the end of it, I'll probably tell you how I feel. But how I feel most of the time is probably not as strongly as you. You know, well, that's how it's always going to be, you know? The conversation can be had, of course, but I think where it, the, the waters get muddied is I saw you tweet something about where someone said, why should I be associated with the worst person in my group? And you said, well, the worst person in the group does represent you, whether you like it or not. Right, and, and that, he knows and, he does. He knows he does. And that's a philosophical debate whether or not uh, members, you know uh, – is the is the general Muslim community responsible for the actions of ISIS? Right. Well, for those of you who don't know about that tweet, I, let me let me cover it as best I can, and I'll talk about that a little bit. Actually, uh, they're definitely going to monetize. But uh, so what I said was, you know, the the, the developer over there at uh, EA tweeted out how he'd gotten seven death threats and a, like sixteen hundred personal attacks. He was logging them for legal reasons and so on and so forth. And this is because of the DLC and, and having too right. many points to, to get Vader. Right, and, which is just like a crazy reason to be mad at a human being. <laughs> it's a crazy reason to attack another person who is as valid and as important as you are. Every one of us is just like us. Every person around you is exactly like you. They have a heart and a mind and a soul. They are just as important and as valid as you are. No one is better than anyone else. Everyone should be treated exactly the same the way you would want to be treated, and that's how how the fucking world works and anybody who doesn't get that is either 12 or kind of dumb that's my opinion and needs to be educated okay and so that that fucking said um uh he i tweeted out and i said this is why they don't take our reasonable requests seriously this is why publishing companies and developers don't care about screwing us over this is why this you know this is why we have to do better this is why some men and women won't date gamers this is why you know and it's this huge list of, of reasons and a lot of people took offense to that and i said we have to do better and 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 what I say, what I meant by that, and I clarified it on the uh, Kotaku in action message board on Reddit. Uh, I said that number one, we can never give in as gamers. We can't give in to that kind of thing. It feels good to cyberbully. It does. I've done my share of it back in the day when I was a teenager, or I mean, not a teenager, but in my my my, my mid twenties. And so I, I I know it feels good. I know it feels good to ruin somebody else's Overwatch game. I know. I, I know it feels good. Um, but you can't do it because it, it discredits the entire movement, right? And I think just like the Muslim community condemns extremists, I think gamers should condemn the people that do that kind of thing. I think we have a certain responsibility to speak out and say, that's not cool to do, man. You can't issue death threats. You can't issue personal attacks. Don't do that. 
And I think if we were very vocal about that, we changed the headlines. Not because it's going to affect anything. You and I can't stop some crazy person from being a crazy person. But what we can do is change the stigma that surrounds gaming. And we can change the headlines because that's what they're going to do. Those people give all the ammo in the world to EA to change the message. They give all the ammo in the world for Kotaku to print some article defending EA, defending the developers. Don't give them that ammo. If more gamers that day said, I do not stand by the people who are saying that shit, but I still want the game to be fixed... If that message is the message that's universally uh, uh, given, then that's the message that that gets the headlines, in my opinion. And that's how the only qu- way we can fix it. How that. do you quantify that universal message? Because even if you have 20 people that sent a death threat or 10 people, wouldn't that, that heavy-handed of a negative message, wouldn't that still be seen as, wow, this is bullshit? If even one person well, still does it, wouldn't that still be the focus? Wow, one person sent me a death threat. Can you well, ever get right. to that point where you eliminate that? Okay, so I, mean, th- I think the I think the I think the timeline goes like this: uh, controversy happens, right? So people don't like the thing. Then crazy person, seven crazy people, because it's only seven people out of how many millions of people are upset about this game. But seven people issue a death threat, and then that developer and Kotaku says death threats over a video game, and then we as a community have to then say, I condemn those seven people. I think they're pieces of shit. They do not speak for me, but I still really want the video game to be fixed. And that we change the message because it, it's, a, it's a series of feeding and responding, feeding, responding, feeding, responding. And when they feed us the, the shitty designed game that's exploitive to us, then we can respond with anger, which we did, and respond with reasonable requests to fix it, which we did. And then they, they fed us this line about how I'm, oh, personal attacks and death threats. And we have to respond to that by being responsible and saying, hey, nobody here believes in that shit. All of us, all, 98% of our community is sane. Okay. It doesn't go back to the fact that the, the most vocal people most of the time are the negative ones. Like when you go look at a Yelp review or an Amazon review, if you're satisfied with the product, you probably won't talk about it. You and will that, only voice right. your opinion if you have a very negative feeling about something or a very negative experience about a restaurant or a product. You right. will more likely to not talk about it. So can you really get that part of human nature out of the equation? Because I would say – most of the people that at, at get this the Battlefront point, game won't even say anything about it ever, more positive or negative online. At, at They're just going to get the game and enjoy it. At this point, well, number one, I'm mostly talking to the people who are very active online. I have a lot of followers sure. and do affect a lot of people. But that said, secondly, I'm only trying to stem the tide at this point. You know, game, I mean, how long have I lived with a stigma over my head because I like to p- press buttons on a controller? How long now? 43 years. I've played my first video game at the age of five. Kids have been making fun of me. I got pantsed because I liked Nintendo as a kid. Are you, know, you serious? I, I, yeah. I, it's who I've always been. It's who I'll always There's been. been that negative gamer stigma for you growing up because when I was growing up, every kid had a Nintendo. Oh, you, you were I, a, I wish. Jocks had... Every jock had a Nintendo. Every kid that played sports. I go over to my friend Joey's house. We play street hockey. Then we play NES right afterwards. Or I guess it depends upon where you grew up. But I've, I never had that negative gamer stigma, or at least where I was. I've had second and third dates with women that they got past my lack of teeth. They got past my morbid obesity. They got past my being broke as shit. They got past my shitty wardrobe and my broken down car. But when I told them I played video games a lot... That was the deal breaker. Well, I've had well, that, that happen. 
that might have been it. When you say a lot, that that could have a connotation of wow, is this all this guy's doing on the weekends is playing video games for twelve hours a day? Well, that I'm might out, have been it. I'm out with you, bitch. So no, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know it's Friday night and I'm here. Now don't get me wrong, I would like to play some World of Warcraft later tonight, but I'm gonna wait till I get home. <laughs> unless you're coming home with me, and then we'll play some multiplayer or something. Not to yeah. go off on a tangent, but in my dating experience, I would keep the gaming stuff usually to like the third date or fourth. You got to sort of weave it in and let them know that, hey, I'm not some sort of freak. Right, 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 aspect. right, yeah. Then, then you sort of – I think the only time where I could tell it was definitely bad was on a – I think it was a second date. And, and the girl came back to my place and she saw my wall of NES games. And now we're just talking video games. We're talking a visual. Because oh, right. oh, nowadays, yeah. nowadays you can say, oh, I love video games. And you'll never see them physically because they're just on Steam on your computer. You know, right, like right, they're right, out exactly. of sight. But when you have a wall of old gray cartridges that are 25 years old, that's a little weird. And yeah, she even said, whoa, yeah. this is like 40-year-old virgin stuff. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to have a third date now. That was it. <laughs> that was it. I, uh, I, 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 I keep thinking about that if I ever have to date again. Do I hide my Amiibo collection or do I leave it prominently displayed in the living room where it is right now? And you know what? Fuck them. If they're not in my Amiibo collection, they're not into me, so they can they can walk out the door, right? But in the past, I'd say eight to nine years, geek culture has become accepted and sort of uh, celebrated. Wait, I mean, you look at the like the biggest TV shows, like The Walking Dead, is zombie stuff. That was considered nerd shit like twenty years ago. I know, yeah, exactly. Zombies. And now it's wow. like, oh, you like that? And now all the superhero movies that are the biggest movies. Geek, so geek stuff is now acceptable. It's like all the, all the closet. Except geeks you forget are if, if I ever date again, I'm not going to be dating any millennials. They're not going to go out with a 43 year old man. Okay, I'm going to be dating you know women that. my age, and they're still <laughs> just as fucking angry about it as they've ever been. Oh, you play video games? Yeah, come on, it's an Xbox. Get over it, you know. I, I would I would give women more credit than that. I think there's a lot of people that grew up with Nintendo or Super Nintendo that'd be like, oh, I used to love those games. I can see why you used to love them today. I sure, you I know? really hope so. I really hope so. I, I really, I really think that the stigma has largely, largely. I would, you can never say 100 percent because there's so many different people. But I would say the stigma has been largely erased. But I will there. tell you that I will tell you this: the people who write at Polygon, and I lo- I love Polygon by the way. If you guys are listening, I listen to your uh, I watch Monster Factory every week. It's a great uh, every time you upload. I love the guys over there, and and the guys over at Kotaku, Stephen Tatillo, You're not doing that bad of a job, honestly. And and some of your writers are, <laughs> are pretty okay guys, you know. But that said, if they get their way, it will be pantsed in the locker room just as often as we can be in the future, and 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 they paint a very negative picture of us and show us. At our worst instead of our, our best, and it really sucks. You know, PewDiePie, uh, God love you, Felix. Uh, you know, he's made some huge mistakes. Huge oh, mistakes. But no, but that's that's what makes the headlines when he makes those huge mistakes. You know what doesn't make the headlines? The five plus million dollars he's raised for charity in the years. That doesn't make the headlines. The the number of people uh, of lives he's not just entertained but saved. He just like me gets just as many letters. Uh, you know, when I was growing up and I, I was polarized and I didn't feel this and I feel that. And anybody who does YouTube gets it right. And if he has 38 million subscribers and I have 4 million, how many more, more times is he getting it? And that guy talks about some dark shit too, man. He really does. And I'm proud of him when he gets away from the gaming stuff and he talks about some of the hardest parts of his life and talks about hardest parts of just being alive today. And I mean, he's a good guy for the most part. He's dumb as a rock when it comes to saying and, and doing the wrong things, man. But uh, but I, I, you know, and I can celebrate because I was raised by a monster who did a bunch of good things, but was a bad person. I can celebrate someone like Felix easily, easily, because yes, Felix has done a lot of damage, you know, and directly affected me with some of the damage he's done. You know, that said, 
I celebrate his good instead. And I wish we had more people like that at Polygon, at Kotaku, at, you know, uh, uh, Big Mom. You know, those people need to be, you know. Well, when we talk about any sort of celebrity, whether it's online or sports figures or movie, you always, what's sexy is the downfall and the bad behavior. Because you always think that, well, the good behavior is almost expected. Right. It's part, it's, and, and part of the, to me at least, part of using your platform and being popular, you you should use your platform for good. So at least for me, not that you shouldn't celebrate people doing charitable uh, works. I mean, I just did a charity event two days ago. But, but Thank you, by the that way. To, oh, well, thank you. That's awesome, well, man. You're welcome. But, but to me, that's almost part of the job. That's to me the giving back part where, yeah, you're, you're getting, you know, you're wildly successful from this popularity to me, it's almost an obligation that you should give something back. I agree. I so agree. to me, but, it shouldn't necessarily be celebrated or or overtly thanked for it. Um, but but, but how beyond many, that, though. But how many that, YouTubers though, don't do that? And that's the but, thing. But you that's know? another and, conversation. And that, I, but, I see your point, though. But that's the thing. Felix had no incentive and no reason to have to do it or anything like that, man. He does it because he actually gives a crap, you know? And, like, it, it's so funny. A lot of YouTubers I know never, uh, you know, and I, I know a lot, man. I, I go to VidCon every year, and I try to get an hour with some of my favorite people, and sometimes those hours turn into days with those people. And the number of people that are just genuinely good and don't talk about the good they do, you would not be surprised. I've always felt that way. I never talk about the money we give to charity. I very rarely do public charity drives because I just take the money people have donated to my Twitch stream and just hand it over, and we give away tens of thousands of dollars to charity every year because it's what you do. It's what you're supposed to do. Uh, even when you're fortunate as I am. That said, um, a lot of YouTubers never even try to go for the glory, you know. And, but, uh, but at the end of the day, I wish that stuff was celebrated more, and I wish that gamers were celebrated more. And and when Mark and Jack and 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 the best of us do wonderful things, Markiplier and Jack Septicai, when they do wonderful things like that, that's what I wish was getting the front page of Kotaku. Well, why is there such a need to be thrown into a group just based upon your hobby? Like, when I want to hear you say us as gamers. I don't think there's well, any reason to do it. I think it's stupid to do it. But that doesn't keep people like Steven Totillo and, and, and his cronies doing it. That's what they do. That's what they do. And that's how the world has always done it. It's all about black and white. It's all about labels. It's all about grouping up people. It's all about tribalism. That's what our podcast has been about today. And that's how the, a lot of these people think. And more importantly, it's how a lot of the readers think. And so, you know, when CNN uh, has an article, uh, you know, say vilifying Reddit, you know, and they talk about all the terrible stuff that Reddit has on it, they forget that there's millions of us sharing pictures of cats on the front page of Reddit. But all of a sudden, it's those filthy Redditors. How many people use Reddit a day and don't identify themselves as a Reddit? How many people play video games and don't identify themselves as gamers, right? But it doesn't matter because they're going to lump you in. It doesn't matter if you lump yourself in, they do it. What is the fear? So is the fear that... In the public eye, uh, it gets swirled up and, and thrown about that gamers are socially awkward and have the stigma of being bad people and doxing people. Is that the fear then that that would be become acceptable? My fear, I mean, you- my fear. My, at the end of the day, I think the thing I worry about the most, and I take this responsibility very seriously, um, and I wish other people did too. I think that uh, any label that can be applied to me, whatever that label is. Uh, cis, white, male, uh, atheist, uh, nihilist, uh, uh, morbidly obese, older, uh, Gen X, whatever label somebody can apply to me, gamer, whatever label it is, whenever I act, especially in a social media way, I am acting in a way that they will, uh, they will use against that group if they don't like that group, right? And so I try to act very, 
very responsibly with everything I do in my personal life as well as online. And I, 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 my biggest, and the reason I do this is because I am terrified of the damage I will do to other people by not doing good enough of a job. And that's what I encourage other people to consider. And that's what I encourage other people to do. And it's not just about being a video gamer and it's not just about being white or anything else or being a conservative or being progressive or being anything else. It all comes down to the fact that I don't want to give people ammo. I want to disarm them instead. That's my, that's what I want to do. And I think that that's a, that's a great point when it comes to social interaction, representing true positive things that have to be done or, or, some sort of social message or uh, movement, but I know I, I, it's hard for me to wrap my head around why I should care what Polygon thinks about gamers. And you may not, you know, and that's okay, and that's fine. And there's plenty of people that feel that way, and you know, uh, there's going to be people who actively want the damage to be done. A lot of those people that issue death threats, they know what they're doing. They know what they're doing with those personal attacks. They want to seed chaos. They want to watch the world burn. Right. And so that's I feel for the people who I feel like I'm responsible for the people who are actively acting against our best interest and actively acting against um, act, actively acting against or the people who don't care. And it's OK not to care. That's fine. You know, I, well, what I'm saying is this, though. Why should a, a specific say Polygon like when they, like Polygon got all that flack about like gamers are dead during the right. game? Right. Right. What would have happened? Wouldn't it have been better if everyone just ignored that article, didn't have the massive backlash, if they just let it just be extinguished in its own little vacuum, not giving it air to breathe? Wouldn't it just have come and gone and nothing would have mattered at the yes, time? Yes and no. Um, so, and this is something I really consider a lot, but I guess probably my – people are probably like, oh, it's so SJW roots are really showing right now. And I guess maybe they are, but I, I keep thinking about uh, – yeah, it would probably – it did have the Streisand effect. And the more gamers complained about it, the more people knew about that article, right? Sure. Um, and Doesn't the backlash validate the reason for the right. article to exist? Okay, and, and there's some truth to that, too. But at the same time, if people don't speak out against that, hopefully in a positive way, the people who spoke out in a negative way, uh, Leigh Alexander, I believe, is the woman who wrote that article, personally attacking her, attacking her as a person, uh, you know, issuing death threats. The people who act in that form actually do a very, very bad job of, of representing us, right? I do think that a lot of people, and I can think of several YouTubers off the top of my head who made a video about that and said, look, gamers aren't dead. There's nothing wrong with being a gamer. There's nothing wrong with identifying with your hobby. Gaming is fun. It's an okay hobby. This woman is wrong. You know, hardcore gamers are always going to exist. We spend the most money. It's just cool that we do that. You know, they should cater to us. There's no reason not to. I think the people who answered it in a very level-headed way kept damage from being done. And if they don't do that, what if... What if the the industry thinks, you know, you're right, everything will be Candy Crush. Let's put loot boxes and everything. Oh, wait, they did that anyway. But still, you know, um, I, I, feel like, I feel like if you can speak up in a responsible way, you should. And if you have to speak up, in a, if you don't care, you don't have to care. That's okay, too. I don't care about most things. Uh, but if you're the kind of person who wants to do evil shit, please don't. <laughs> please don't because you represent me and I hate it when you do that. I think there's, to me, just the inherent – I mean, Gamergate was a great example, at least, of crystallizing the both, the, I guess, the pros and cons you look at it of associating with a group that's so nebulous and so vague yeah. that it can represent anything. Exactly. So at, at that point, when you're saying I'm part of a gamer group, what exactly are you saying? And in and of itself, 
the whole Gamergate message and hashtag to me is like once something becomes a hashtag, what the hell does that even mean at yeah, that point? Yeah. What what does a hashtag mean? And who's the one that defines what that means and what that message is? Who's the representative? Who keeps it coherent? Who keeps it cogent? Who's the one that and nobody, decides right. when it's going off the rails? So that's where I come back to the fact that it's not that it's much ado about nothing, but you come you go from this whole argument of which is a which is a good one of we should have ethical standards in in journalistic pr- practice when it comes to video games. Absolutely, I, it'd be hard pressed to find even gaming journalists working for Kotaku. I think that would be against that. But when you turn that into a hashtag movement. Then it becomes anything else you want it to. And then you can have people jumping in from left and right. Exactly. So when you when you have a, a, a movement that gets associated with any hashtag or any phrase, I think that's always dangerous. And that's just my opinion on it because then right. it's hard to pinpoint exactly what your well, end goal is and how well, you quantify well, the worst part know, about it is, steps to it. The wor- worst part about it, again, you're doing their job for you. you know? You're labeling yourself. And you're allowing them to assign negative qualities to whatever. And so again, you know, I go back to to you know, I, I almost mentioned by name, and I'm not going to mention by name because we've made amends. But we have that one reporter who told me, you know, one day we're going to have to write about Gamergate, and when we do, we're going to make sure that you're listed as one of the leaders because of your tacit support of that movement or whatever. And you know, I never supported the movement. I supported some of the ideas of the movement, but I never considered myself what, whatever that is, you know. Uh, but I, I like some of the ideas, and I don't like some of the other ideas. I, same with progressiveness. I like some of your ideas, and I like I dislike some of the others. And same with conservatism. I, I like some of your ideas, and I don't like some of the others. And and that's pretty much. I take the best from anything and throw away the rest. And that's how I think you should become. That's how you become a person, right? You know, and you don't have to blindly tr- you don't have to blindly support Roy Moore just because you're conservative. You don't have to just because you're Republican. You don't have to support Roy Moore just because he has an R next to his name too. You know, you you can dislike parts of your party. You can dislike parts of your uh, hobby. You can dislike parts of of whatever it is that you're surrounded by. And I don't know why people don't choose to do that. Everyone is an individual, but you are so quick to tribalize. You know, when I call myself a gamer. Um, I, the only thing I mean is I like to play video games as a hobby. That's all that word means to me. I don't know what else it's supposed to even mean. Um, and when I talk about other gamers, I talk about other people who, who buy video games and play them. And that's all I'm really thinking. But that means so much more to CNN. That means so much more to Kotaku. That means so much more to Fox News, you know, and I hate it. Well, it, well it's easy to categorize people. Like you said, uh, humans by nature are tribalistic. Uh, most primate species are. We, we band together in the groups, and that's how we distinguish one from each other. Yeah. And it's hard to get over that. And it's, I think it's more difficult at times to – it's actually a lot more work to think about individual issues or individual points versus attaching yourself to an entire plank of beliefs that – Okay, if you believe A, you also believe B through yeah. Z yeah. automatically. And that's a lot easier to wrap your mind around. At least I think this is what I think my, philosophically. A lot of people just say, okay, I'm going to take that piece. That's what I am. We're saying, oh, no, I like A, B, and C, but I hate F, G, H. I's a little weird. Right, and right. that, I think, is harder for humans by nature. A complexity and nuance, it, right. I think, is lost to a lot of people. Right. And, because, and again, it requires thinking. And again, and, and you know, and I – you know, I quote George Carlin here. He says, think of someone you know who's of average intelligence, right? Think of somebody you know who's just, just pretty much is about as smart as your average person. Now realize half the population is dumber than that guy. 
And it's like when you think about that, I guess that's probably true. But I don't really, you know, even some of the least intelligent people I know are t- tend to be very good people and they can be critical and they can, they're capable of critical thinking. I think anybody is, I think anybody even with the lowest intelligence can be taught critical thinking. It's just, we teach the opposite. We teach the opposite. You know, the very first day you sat down in school, they teach you to think like everybody else, right? Sure. They teach you to go along with the crowd and it's, it's, it's frustrating. And I'm not saying I'm better than anybody else. I'm just saying I'm different in that way. You know, I, I, I never really understood what they were trying to get me to do and I never really cared for it. And I, since my situation was different, I thought a little different than other people and that's fine. You know? Yeah. I, w- I always come back to behavior versus belief system. And the two in theory have little to do with each other. So, so you could be a great person to your neighbors and everyone in your family and everyone you get into contact with and still have horrible personal beliefs. Right. Like the, you can be in, in theory, someone could be the worst racist could, could hate, hate gay people. But if they treat everyone around them, like with respect, you would never know that potentially. Right. Exactly. So then it comes back to, okay, what are you really looking at when you're looking at hu- humans? Is it more important what how they're behaving and treating each other, or what they d- deep down believe? And that and for some people, for some people, they intersect, but for a lot of people, it may not. And so that's one of the most interesting aspects between the current generation and the generation I grew up with, right? So for my back in my day, it was all about tolerance. That was the word of the day tolerance tolerance right and so let's imagine you are a nuclear family and you're the father of that family and you know you live in an all-white neighborhood and you have a cousin who's gay all right and you don't have to agree with your cousin's lifestyle but you have to accept it you have to treat him with respect you have to tolerate him right and so a black family moves into your neighborhood you know what you don't have to be okay with that you don't have to like it that's okay you can have all the misconceptions you want in the world but you have to tolerate them. You have to treat them like your neighbor because they're your neighbor now, okay? You have to tolerate them. And that's true of the Muslims down the road and the synagogue down the road. And it's true of, of everybody else around you. But the flip side of that coin was everyone tolerated bigots too. The flip side of that coin was it's okay that you're stupid. It's okay that you're wrong. It's okay. We're going to treat you neighborly. We're going to treat – as long as you don't act on it, as long as you're tolerant of us, we'll be tolerant of you. That's the deal. And so that was a really good system, and it worked for us growing up. It really did. And when someone turned out to be intolerant, they were ostracized. And when they turned out to be tolerant, but no matter what belief structure they had, we were, we're cool with it. We're cool with you. That's all right. Old Mr. Fender, he's a dumbass. He, you know, but he still, <laughs> but he, he still checks out the, the black people coming to the store just like anybody else, and he should, and that's how it should be. You know, he doesn't say anything rude to him. He says hello when they walk to the door and says goodbye when they leave. He's a good guy, right? And he may very go home and very well go home and burn a cross on his coffee table. That's fine as long as he's treating everybody with tolerance. These days, if if we even believe that Mr. Fender could possibly have one second of wrong think, we have to destroy him. We have to brutalize him. And I don't know how the world is supposed to work like that. I don't know how the world's supposed to work like that. I'd rather tolerate Mr. Fender and maybe, maybe help educate that guy. And maybe help him find the error of his ways, right? I'd rather do that. I wouldn't destroy the guy. I don't think anything comes of destroying somebody else. Educating, teaching, uh, empathizing, sympathizing. Those are the keys. That's the way it's done. That's how my generation did it. And maybe it's not how your generation is going to do it. And that's fine. 
or I mean, you know, the generation of the people listening right now. I know you're a little older but, too. But I think but... that I think what's happening now, though, is I think in theory, what you're saying is, yeah, say you live in a neighborhood and half the one the one block hates people across the street. They literally hate each other. But as long as they they're nice and, and pleasant in person and, and aren't throwing things at each other, you're saying that's okay. I think what's happening in the current political environment is people are seeing a potential really weird slippery slope where all of a sudden people are coming out from, you know, like, oh, privately they're a racist and okay, in their house there isn't. Now they're feeling, they're, they're, they're feeling, oh, now it's okay for me to step out and profess that to the rest of the world. Right. And that's where people are like, oh, okay, this is weird now because we haven't seen this in a while. Right. But and that's I where th- people are getting freaked out. But I think part of that comes from, I have a, a friend um, who in the last two or three years has gone like deep, deep, deep off the end. And he happened to go off the, the conservative end. And five or six years ago, I had a, a friend who went deep, deep off the left end, right? And one thing that they have in common, I think it's a product of the time. And what's... What's really weird about it is I don't think they would have ever been that person until it became acceptable to do that. And I think one of the things that made it so acceptable is I've always believed social change has to be a slow process, right? Um, I, I use the analogy boiling the frog. And so have you ever heard the phrase that if you throw a, a, a frog in a boiling pot, it'll hop out. But if you put him in a cold pot, a uh, cold pot of water, and then slowly warm it up, you can boil him to death and he will never know. I kind of feel like that's how you have to treat social change. And so for a really long time, they're starting with the Clinton administration and moving right to the end of the Obama administration. We, uh, and I say we, I mean progressives, uh, progressives really bit out a big chunk, a big chunk, right? The difference between 1992 and, and, and 2016 is a big difference socially. Um, and, and the way that we were treating uh, people of color, the way we were treating uh, people who are transgender, the people who were treating people who are homosexual. We got marriage equality in that period of time. We went from uh, not even it being a pipe dream of, of a hope uh, and a, a puff of smoke of hope to it being a reality. But the problem oh, sure. is the problem is that was not boiling the frog. That was asking for a lot really quick. And so you got a lot of people who are, are terrified of how quickly things are changing and they fight. And they fight back, you know. But isn't but isn't that sort of if you're on the right side of history, you're on the right side of history, and you can't cater to the people that are behind the times. I mean, for example, would the Civil Rights Act have happened if there wasn't that social upheaval and forcing it to get to that point quickly in the sixties? Right. But then again, what you have, and people forget how bad the eighties were, and the eighties sucked for a lot of people. Um, But uh, you, you have to remember here in America, especially the pendulum swings and we have a two party system and, and it swings left and it swings right and it swings left and it swings right. And, um, you, you have the sixties, but then you have the eighties and then you have the, 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 the aughts and now you've got this and you know, now the swing, the pendulum has swung very far right and it's very active in that way. And that's fine. But the problem is the further the pendulum swings, the more damage gets done. What, what, you know? When you say the pendulum swing, you mean the balance of power in government has swung? Because well, that's I would part say of it, that but also the political climate and the, the social climate I would say the, changes I, I with say it. This, I say the social and political climate exactly where it is. It's just that people now are voicing what they always held inside them, and now they feel more comfortable professing right. it. That's but, my But opinion. I think we would not – again, I think if we didn't make so much progress so quickly, I think that people wouldn't have been as afraid or so volatile. 
That's so my so for, so if we didn't have a, an African American president, for example, that might have upset oh, yeah, that, people. That brought out the worst in a lot and of people. Probably, it really sure. did, you know. And and that's but, great. But, I mean, but, don't but get me wrong. You're saying you're not saying it's acceptable. You're saying that's a necessary evil, and it's almost expected that this happens. Yeah, there's I, a backlash, and that it's happens. very shameful, and it's awful, and it sucks. Okay, so and, I just want to clarify and, that. And okay. I'll tell you the other thing that I'm, I'm trying to say here is that. Like, I understand why we have to do that, because let's say you are a young uh, homosexual boy, right? And and you are growing up at the time I grew up in the 80s, and you want to be able to be openly gay, and you want to be able to maybe marry someone you love one day. And so you don't want to plant a tree for the next generation, you want your life to change, right? And so you want it to be fixed now. I want my life to change. I don't want to make the world a better place for my kids or my kids' kids. I want to make the world better for me. And so it's very, it's understandable why that happens. But that said, that's the backlash. And and so if you get that progress, sometimes you got to live through the backlash, right? Sure. I, I guess it comes down to well, right. you have to force history. I mean, look, right. at this. we had but, we literally had a civil war. You know, and and depending on how you feel, you know, whether you're conservative or or, or, or progressive here, uh, you know, obviously the Trump administration is the pendulum swinging very, very far right, uh, and so the either good side or bad side of that, depending on how you feel, is that when it swings back, it'll swing very, very far left, and I'm curious as to uh, how that'll look. It's it, it's not a surefire bet that it'll swing back to the extreme. It, it so, has so so far for about two hundred and forty years. So we'll, well see. Well, no, it, it's gone Democrat to Republican, but the political parties, Democrat and Republican, used to be center left and center right, very well, close true, together. Yeah, that's true. And now they've grown apart, and the majority of people do identify somewhere in the middle. And I, uh, and, that's I what people, and I will say this is all theory crafting to me. I'm not an expert. I don't have a, a degree in political <laughs> science. I don't know any more than anyone listening to this. I don't know any more than you, Pat. Uh, and probably, in fact, probably speaking, you probably all know more than me. That said, this is just me applying my morality to the world that uh, surrounds me and trying to, you know, understand it and make sense of it and what I think is right. But it doesn't matter because one day I will die and you will all forget my name and then you guys will all die and the planet oh, we live on will no. fall into the sun and nothing matters and it's all it does. Who gives a shit? So, Stephen, my dear boy, you're going to be on YouTube forever. You're, you're going to be seen ten thousand years from now, uh, we'll which see. is both. Uh, consoling and kind of depressing when I think about it. People might be watching me in my bad mirror behind me. Oh no! Is that why though? Is that why though that you think people uh, have an attachment to you because they see that these these are truly your beliefs. This is when you, this is who you are when you're appearing in your videos. You're, this is not a facade. This is not an act. I'm not like some some Disney bro uh, out there appealing to the teeny boppers. I'm actually here saying something that, to, at least to me, has weight. Is that? Why you feel there's a connection there with your audience? I, I think a lot of it is. And I think a lot of it is, especially when I talked to like Markiplier, right? Markiplier, um, I didn't know this, but he was a fan of mine before he even got started. And one, uh, Two VidCons ago, he told me something that I'll never forget. But I told him, I said, Mark, thanks for your relentless positivity, especially all the things you've gone through. He had just lost one of his friends, like one of his YouTube community members. And uh, he's like, you know, the reason I do that, Boogie, is because I've been watching you for a long time. And your relentless positivity, not just on YouTube, but through your life, is what makes me want to be positive for other people. And I, that really hit me 
you know, and, and, and I don't know, that's amazing, but like, but how Mark affects people in that same way and how I try to affect people, I think a lot of it just comes down to the fact that I try to be a completely open book. A lot of people on YouTube try to put the best of themselves up here and I don't put the worst of me up here, but I do put as much of me as I can, right? You know, as much as me, uh, other than me taking a shower or maybe the arguments I have with my fans, <laughs> friends or family or wife or something like that, or, you know, the, the severest debilitating anxiety, stuff like that, that's never gone up. But I'm not afraid to talk about the problems I have or the issues I face. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. And I don't think enough people do that. I think it's, I think if you have a voice like I have or like Mark does, I, I think it is so important to talk about the stuff that he talks about. I, and, and, and even Felix does it from time to time. And, and like, uh, Ethan from H3H3, I'm a huge fan of his because if you listen to his podcast, he will frequently talk about the personal issues he faces and Gila faces. And he talks about his, 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 um, Oh, Tourette's and stuff like that. And when you talk about that stuff, you really can help people even just letting them know that they're not alone in the world. Or letting them know the challenges you face makes maybe sometimes the challenges they face a little easier to know that they're not alone facing it or, or maybe to know that you overcame the thing that you've overcome. It can make them feel better about overcoming the thing they're doing. So I, I think the fact that I've been open about it is why I've retained some of the audiences that I've retained, even if they disagree with me politically and about half my audience does. And even if they disagree with my opinions about video games half the time, I think they're connected to me as a person because they get to know me as a person. And, and I think that's what YouTube is about. That's what separates YouTube from TV. You know, it, it, it's that personal, right? Now, right? It, right? It's supposed, it's supposed to be the you and YouTube. And that's, that's what I've always tried to do. You know? where, do you, where do you see yourself five years now? Or would you be happy doing what you're doing right now? I'd love to either be Twitch streaming still, or, uh, I'd love to be doing YouTube still or whatever the new service is, whatever it is. I'd like to have a, a footing on it. Um, if, if this bubble finally does burst and it's on a decline, it's been on a steady decline for the last four years or whatever, but I still do great, you know, but if it ever gets to a point that I'm not doing great anymore, I'd love to consult. I would love to move out to LA and, and, and work with a company there and directly, uh, help in somewhere either somewhere on an MCN. If I had to, I hate MCNs, but I might, you know, if I know that I could actually fight for the people that are under us and do good things for them, maybe I would try to do that. But I, I don't know. Isn't the news that MCNs are slowly dying out, though, too? Uh, yeah, for the most part. It's it's hard for them to make money. And again, if they had ever done what they were supposed to do, you know, it's so funny that YouTube had to work directly. Um, but MCNs were originally designed to manage partners, keep them advertiser-friendly, and sell ads directly to people like Walmart and stuff so they don't have to worry about the Google auction stuff, right? Sure. And so, you know, we guarantee that everybody in our network is safe. So advertise with us, advertise with our particular, you know, and, and when they do that job, uh, they are excellent. They are excellent. And when they don't do that, and that, that YouTuber stuck on relying on the YouTube auctions, um, that's when they, they're just leeching 20% off of you or 10% off of you. And that sucks. Yeah. I, I think that's, it's surprising that, I mean, first of all, the apocalypse, you, you spoke about it that you know there has been a decline and a lot of people have seen that and it's not shocking it wasn't shocking to me no it was shocking that google had no real response to it and that they weren't expecting it to happen right that's yeah i think that that was the most shocking thing it's like yeah the salad days were going to end at some point right with advertisers then realizing what their ads are being and again shown in and again the content. thing that i think bothers us most is how knee-jerk the reaction is they they responded far 
far too critically. Like it's 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 gone way too far in the. the well, that was a pendulum, right? So that yeah, went from right. no, we're not looking at any videos versus what ads are being shown, and now it's like okay, we got to hedge our bets to appease the advertisers. Now we're hurting the creators and now it's sort of working itself out slowly machine learning and manual overrides of, of demonetization so it's getting there but again they didn't have they weren't prepared for it and that, that's what you're sort of surprised that a gigantic company like oh, alphabet slash google was not prepared for it. and that's why i always come back to when, when it's that but then again there's big companies that make dumb decisions all the time that are unprepared you know yep, Equifa- yep. Equifa- what happened with equifax exactly there's those Boy, the, John, again, I, I do watch John Oliver from time to time. Don't always agree with everything he has to say, but man, when his bet on Equifax and just the sheer incompetency, man, wow. Uh, just The company insane. is supposed to help you protect your identity and help you out. With, now they, they gave it all away. Well, all you know, they were actually selling stuff like your uh, yeah. financial like records to debt collectors. It's insane. It's insane what that. Yeah, that company. Oh, geez, it's it's funny. It, 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 we all get mad at EA, but at the end of, at the end of the day, what it's EA does is they just ruin a video game, right? I know. Like, it's, it's so funny because everybody talks about how they lost, um, uh, how how they won worst company of the year two years in a row. But you know, <laughs> Bank of America was also up against them. And here's the thing about Bank of America: they ruined people's lives with that mortgage crisis, right? But like that, they but destroyed who, yeah. people's lives, put them in the homeless shelters and shit. And like, but oh no, EA ruins video games, so we're gonna. But yeah, way it, worse. it's who's who's actually going online and leaving. Who's actually voting right. on that? Who's going online and yelling on Twitter? Right. Who's going online and yelling? And death threats just because their DLC is harder to get in a video game. I mean, that's what it comes down to. I think you have fringe people that will always exist. And, yes, unfortunately, that gets twisted and abused by the people that will use that to their purpose versus realizing that, hey, 99% of people aren't going to leave a death threat over a video game because yeah. we're not insane. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 again, that's why I hate being lumped in. I hate that you know millions of good people get lumped in with seven douchebags, but, they, but we do. And we have to think like that, and we have to realize that that's what those people do. You know? So let's let's take the internet away from those seven douchebags. By yeah. the way, you enjoying that uh, the NES guidebook? You enjoying that? I did. I it's literally on my coffee table. Well, I don't have a coffee table, but it's literally right there in the front room, and people uh, flip through it every time. It is a gorgeous book, man. Thanks for giving me these two at Retropalooza. It is very well done. It is very well done. I may or may Thank not so have recently gotten a collection of uh, games that I've been playing through, and so I've been flipping through the book to look for stuff. To oh, play. Okay. Yeah. I won't say right, I, I won't say how I got that collection of games. So it might, <laughs> I'll have to do a brand deal with you at some point. Might be <laughs> of, oh, nice. There you go. Right, but uh, but yeah, my wife is like my wife, not a big heavy gamer, and never owned an NES. She was a Genesis kid. Okay, uh, she was a Sega kid. But uh, but uh, her remark in the book was, "Wow, it's heavy." So that's so you know, you know yeah, you're like getting your money's you, worth. What do you buy? People 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 aren't <laughs> expecting it, and that was honestly when I when I created the book, not to make this about the book, but. That was not a, a precursor to preventing something like the apocalypse from hurting me financially. But right. I always realize that if it does end, you have to diversify not just your creativity, but also, I guess, exactly. your income. And that exactly. was something that I thought that was a no-brainer. Not that no-brainer it would do as well as it has, but I have to try something else, do some writing, do it's some a, other work, it's a produce something. It's a gorgeous product. That's why it's doing well. It's incredible, man. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. I really appreciate that. It, it, I sacrificed my YouTube career. I mean, it comes with anything else. It's time constraints. I sacrificed my YouTube career growing my channel 
And people are like, Pat, where did you go? Because I didn't tell my audience that I was working on the book for like two and a half years. Yeah, exactly. I didn't let them know until like the couple months before the Kickstarter hit that it was coming. Right. So it's like anything else. It's like, well, or do you define yourself as a, a YouTuber because you're on YouTube once a month or once a week or twice a week? Or is that your main income? You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things. I decide I have to diversify and do other things. And now maybe it's that's where I was. I want to talk about with guests uh, about YouTube middle age and where you go next. And I think a lot of us, at least people like in my age, mid to late 30s that have been on YouTube for 10 years, are, are starting to diversify and get outside of YouTube. Uh, people like Andre Meadows from Black Nerd Comedy. Like he's on YouTube. He's a big YouTuber. But you'll see him working outside of YouTube, having doing jobs that have nothing to do with YouTube. And he shows up on the red carpet for just his league. You know, like he's getting himself out there. And I think that's a progression that's happening with some of us. Right. And not I, just by necessity, but doors are opening up. People are coming to YouTubers now and say, well, you have some expertise, whether it's in marketing or content creation. How do you help? us outside of YouTube get to where we want to be. And that's, I think, going to develop more in the next few years. Right, and that's something that I'm really interested in now that I'm getting this weight off of me. Like I said, I'd love to end out at LA at some point and doing stuff that's not just creating videos and streaming on Twitch. And, you know, my way of diversifying, because I was stuck in this house being so big and, and, and stuck in Arkansas, I was really focusing on, like, Twitch um, and making sure I was big on every social media platform as I can, you know, half a million followers on Twitter, stuff like that, to make sure there was always a way to reach my audience and always w a way to have a message. I mean, always a way to hopefully earn an income that way. Um, and, you know, then fortunately I got to a point where I was making enough from YouTube to put money into savings. And so some of that savings is now invested, which is nice. Um, certainly not enough to retire on or anything close, but hopefully one day. Uh, but that said, maybe I'll use that money to, to make it out in L.A. and do exactly that because that's what I want to do. Well you know, in that I'm new, just, in this new body, as I'm building this new body, that's what I want to by do. The, by the way, you look fantastic. Thanks, I man. know when I saw you in Arlington, we had a, a decent conversation about weight loss, and I, I, I wasn't in the shape you were in, but I did lose a lot of weight in college. Proud of and you, man. Just, I, thank you. I, I think what I love to have. I mean, I, I've tried to have much empathy as I can for people with any sort of substance abuse problems or addiction, but I tend to have more for people going through weight loss just because I went through it myself. But also, I try to remind people that may not have the same empathy that I have towards it is that unlike drug addiction or alcohol abuse or gambling addiction, or you have to eat. Yeah, that's one so of the toughest it's, 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 it's hard to struggle with an addiction or a disorder where you have to actually do it to survive and to retrain and rethink about what I'm putting in my, my body. And it's also a body chemistry issue at the same time. Like your body, body's chemistry will change as your metabolism changes and even how your brain is hardwired to think about how much you should actually be eating. Yeah. Right. And that those things that are actually changed. You've probably seen it yourself. You're probably shocked by how much less you eat now versus a year ago. It's funny because a couple of times my roommate is like, Hey, do you want me to pick you up food uh, from one of our favorite restaurants? And I'm like, yeah, give me the grilled chicken from some chickens or whatever. And, uh, you know, I can't eat fried food anymore. It makes me very sick, but I'll get the Same grilled stuff. And, um, uh, I normally would, you know, would come with like fries or whatever, come with toast and then it would come like five pieces of chicken or whatever. And I would, I normally, and that would be deep fried and stuff. And so like, I let him keep my fries, uh, but I'll keep my toast and I'll keep my five pieces of chicken. And that's two meals for me now. And it's pretty great. And, uh, the other day I went and got fajitas at one of my favorite Mexican restaurants. My, my, my nutritionist recommended it. They're like, stay away from the refried beans, stay away from the guac and the sour cream. But if you're eating the meat and the vegetables, that's great. Uh, try to get a, a lower carb tortilla or maybe not use the tortillas at all. And I'm like, okay. So I got my favorite shrimp fajitas for my, uh, favorite Mexican restaurant as a little treat. 
and uh, I got three meals out of it. And I used to get the double fajitas when I was there. I get the twenty two dollars for two people, <laughs> and I would get that, and I would eat ninety percent of it, and then take maybe ten percent home. At uh, this one, well, I got it to go, and it was in the fridge, and I got three separate meals out of it. And I'm just like, holy yeah. crap! It's amazing. you don't realize it till right. you feel full by a smaller amount of food. I remember with me when I started losing weight. I started losing weight by I started to run. Uh, sophomore year of college, after my my knee was still messed up from the surgery, the car was all messed up, so it, oh, yeah. it was tough. But I started to do it, and I started giving up just just sweet drinks. I gave up sodas, I gave up fr- you know fruit punch and lemonade, and that was a big. And I always tell people that's the first thing you should do because that's the easiest. Just stop drinking sugar drinks. Yep, exactly. You'll automatically lose weight. I've been but doing that almost I, a year, by the way. For the record, this uh, yeah. da- Damien got me this from two Retropaloozas ago. And I've only ever drank water out of it because it keeps ice out of it. If you ever see this on my stream or you ever see this on my YouTube videos, it's always filled with ice water. And I've been drinking primarily ice water for the better part of a year. And that alone kept that kept me from gaining weight. I finally or stopped even gaining weight. Like, you know, like Crystal Geyser flavored mineral water, whatever. There's oh, yeah. so many options. Oh, yeah. But the point was, I remember, I remember this specifically. I'll never forget this. At a barbecue where I would normally eat like two burgers, two hot dogs, and like a bunch of sides. I remember struggling to finish my one hot dog and one burger. So I was struggling to finish yeah. half of what I would normally exactly. eat. And I was like, what the hell? Like that, It just sort of hit me like, oh, my God, I've been eating double the amount of food I actually needed my entire life. Right. And I'll tell you and what. I sort of hit it. I'll tell you one of the craziest parts about it is, so my nutritionist, again, I just met with her, and uh, she wrote down all my macros and stuff, and I'm still sort of getting like 102 grams of protein a day and, uh, you know, under 100 carbs uh, a day. And, but again, with me eating as much protein as possible because they don't want me to lose – when I'm losing weight here, they don't want me to lose lean mass. They want me to lose sure. only fat. And uh, you got to keep your protein up if you want to do that. Um, but uh, she has me between eating between 1,000 to 2,000 calories a day. And uh, that is pretty reasonable, except the problem is getting in 2,000 calories a day would be really tough. So that's good. I, I've only gone over 2,000 calories once, and it, it was a, a long day in which I didn't sleep for 24 hours, so I had four meals. Sure. Uh, but um, that said, uh, normally eating about 1,000 to 1,200 calories a day right now. Uh, and I'm not losing weight the way it mathematically should work. The, the scale does not work the way it's supposed to work. Now, what's fascinating about that is my waistline continues to shrink even when the scale doesn't move. Uh, my clothes continue to fall off of me even when the scale doesn't continue to move. And it's weird. Um, but what, what I'll tell you probably why though, why? Because your, your muscle mass is slowly increasing. Right. And that's part of it too. And we actually did, we actually did a test to see how much muscle weight I had lost versus fat. And I've lost more fat than muscle loss, which is good. That said, uh, because your body attacks your muscle first. It wants to get rid of the muscle first because the muscle affects your BMR and it knows that. But, uh, the other problem I'm facing right now is I'm losing weight slower than I wished I was. And my surgeon is not upset about that. He said five to 10 pounds, five to 10 pounds a month. That's what you're losing. You lost 20 pounds a month, Boogie. And I feel like I should be losing it faster than I am. But a lot of it has to do with the fact that my horm- hormones are ruined. My body does not produce testosterone. I have to inject testosterone once a week. Uh, Interesting. Right. And my doctor believes I have a pituitary gland tumor, uh, but we've never been able to get me into an MRI machine to find out if it's there. Uh, But he treats me as if it is there. Uh, And uh, he's like, if it's there, it's been there your whole life. So we know it's benign. So we're not in any hurry. Uh, but that's probably why your system is so out of whack and why you got so big to begin with. And a lot of people are like, you know, in order for him to gain weight at his size, he'd have to eat 4,500, 5, 5,000 calories a day. But I've been tracking calories for a long time. And, yes, I was still eating 3,000, 3,500 calories a day, sometimes as little as 2,000. But 
my body still would not. It just does not do what it's supposed to do. A lot of that has to do with how horribly inactive I've been because of injuries and stuff. A lot of that has to do with the fact that I'm just hormonally out of whack. Who knows exactly what it is? Oh, doesn't sure. matter. Again, these are reasons that it's slow. It's not an excuse. It will not yeah, keep absolutely. me from doing what needs I mean, to get done. At the end of the day, it's calories in, calories out. Right. Uh, though. So, I mean, you start exactly. exercising, burning, exactly. you burn calories, you're going to burn calories no matter exactly. what. Exactly. And so I wish that I wish that it, it was exactly the mathematical formula that we've all been taught. Um, but every the very first thing they tell you when you will sign up for this program is every person's different. Uh, that is a hard and fast rule. It's, it's like you know when you get a history degree uh, when you start when you sign up for your history bachelor's class. The very first thing they tell you in history college is everything we've taught you so far has been a lie. Everything we taught you in high school is a lie. Now we're going to teach you the truth. And then when you sign up for the master's degree for history, they tell you everything we just taught you in college was a lie. Here's the truth: we actually don't know what happened, but we're going to help you try to figure out how we figured out what we think happened. And that's true. <laughs> that's true. Ask any history major. That's the first thing they tell you is that everything we've taught you is a lie. We don't know what happened. We only have a limited amount of things to work on. This is why we, here's how we arrive at what we arrive at. That's what getting a history master's does. It teaches you how to write history and how to figure it out. How to research. How to research, right? And uh, so that's, you know, but again, a, a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions and part of getting the surgery was getting educated about those misconceptions. And so I feel like it's so important to, to try to educate people that, but the pushback on it's so bad. It's so bad. Like 4chan's fit board and like the bodybuilding forums are like, I can't believe what a stupid fucking cookie is. I can't believe it. And I'm just like, I'm just telling you what my doctor told me. Well, your doctor's an enabler. No, he's literally the opposite of an enabler. He literally is trying to rip this fat off of my body as fast as he can. That's exactly what I paid him twenty thousand dollars for, you know, uh, you know, cash, cash out of my fucking pocket, out of my savings, man, and, you know, and he's earning his fucking keep, you know. But it's so it's so fascinating because everybody thinks they're an armchair doctor, and it's it sucks because I don't I, even I don't know. I've literally sat through a hundred hours of classes in order to qualify for the surgery, and even I don't know less than a hundred hours, but still, uh, many, 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 many classes, and even I don't know, even I don't know. You know, so I, anybody who hasn't done the research that I've done, how do you know? And my doctor has a degree, and even he'll tell you he doesn't know. This is what we think how it works. Every know? every person's body's different and it reacts differently. Some people burn fat easier than others. I mean, you, we all knew that kid down down the block. He'd always have like I remember I remember the kid Bobby. He always had a king sized Reese's peanut butter cup with five of them. Never shared them. Thin as a yeah, exactly thin as a rail. If I ate that, I'd be fat. Exactly. He, but he was eating it, and he was thin. But and, and that's just the way it works out sometimes. But there is still <laughs> that hard and fast rule of it is still calories in versus calories, calories out. out. Eat yeah. less, move more. That's it. That's yeah. all there is to it. It's the only but, way to do it. So. But I'm glad to see you. Actually, you're moving around now. It's great, man. I, you know, it's funny. Yeah. Uh, you know, my wife is out of town right now and, uh, you know, she's helping out with a family member or grandfather's very sick, stuff like that. And so she's going to be out of town for the next couple of weeks and that sucks. Uh, but a year ago I couldn't have, I couldn't have been alone like this. I would have had to hire in-home help. I would have had to done all kinds of things. Even a month before the surgery, I couldn't have done this, but now I'm able to take care of the dog, take care of the house and stuff like that. Still run the business, still be able to do that stuff. And then on top of that, I'm, I'm able to actually exercise a little bit. You know, I can't take the dog fully around our block yet, but I can get him out in the front for a while and we can play together now. And I can lean over to pick up stuff out of the floor, which is something I couldn't do three months ago. And I'm able to sit longer and move longer and stand longer and, and drive. I haven't been able to drive in a really long time and my knees kind of keeping me from doing it right now. But there's a period of time where it was difficult to even turn the wheel because my, uh, even in our massive car, which was a night 2005, because it was one of the best fitting cars I could get. I could barely drive the thing because of how big I was. You know, 
Yeah, so but- then it's baby steps. You see the baby steps right. and that keeps you going forward. Right. So and maybe then- a, f- a few months from now you can walk around the block right. and then maybe a year from now you can you can walk a mile or and a few miles. They, and, and, yeah. and in the, in our support group uh, for my, my, my surgery, we call that uh, non-scale victories, right? And the scale victories is the important one. We all know that and we, uh, we all care about that. But at the end of the day, uh, clothes fitting you better or being able to buy something off the rack or being able to, to, to have better sex or to be able to, uh, to, to, to participate in life more or being able to do different stuff or whatever it is, whatever your non-scale victories are. For me, it's finally being able to sit comfortably for the first time in a while, lay down comfortably for the first time in a while, play with my dog, the better sex is one of them. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, stuff like that. It's, 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 it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And it's so motivating and it's so much better than food. And when I was trapped in this body and I was trapped at my biggest and I was in all that chronic pain before the surgery and before that surgery took a huge amount of weight off me very quickly, uh, food was one of the only things I w- that would end the pain. Food was one of the only things that made it enjoyable. And, you know, I'm really stressed right now and I'm probably not doing as good as I could be right now. Uh, you know, I think eight, yesterday I had 1,700 calories, which is pretty fucking high. But, um, I, 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 yeah, at the end of the day, food just doesn't do it for me anymore. What does it for me is to be able to do the things I've never been able to do, right? And by the end sure. of this year, I want to go to every PAX I can. I want to go to RTX. I want to go to, to VidCon and the Game Awards and the PlayStation Experience. And, and, and you know, the guys up at Microsoft have asked me to come out there a thousand times to come out to the to the headquarters and, and tour the campus. And I want to do it. I want to do all this stuff. I want to take my wife finally on our honeymoon together. We never got to take a honeymoon. I want to take her to Disneyland and or Disney World. We've been to Disneyland a bunch of times, but... Uh, be able to actually ride the rides the next time in, at, at Disneyland and be able to do all of those things. And it's so much more important than food. But it wasn't when I was trapped, when I, those things were never going to be an option. And I didn't believe they would be an option, you know. And I didn't have that surgery to serve as a, you know, and I mean, it's a, a very good surgery, but also as a placebo effect or as a, uh, you know, something that pushed me in the right direction. Maybe it's the spending of the money or the taking of the classes or whatever it is. This was the forceful action to get you. Right, right. To get it. And to get my mind around it and get myself into the right place. You know, it's so funny. I had a guy um, who I met on FARC.com, if you're familiar with that website. That sounds familiar, but I haven't heard of it. It was kind of like a a Reddit back in the day. Um, But. I was very active on that website, and one guy, uh, I posted a picture of myself there, and he wrote me immediately and asked me uh, about my weight and size and whether or not I'd ever thought about gastric bypass. And I said, yes. And if I could ever qualify for the surgery, I'll get it. And I actually qualified for the surgery roughly five or six years ago. There was a surgeon in Texas who was going to do it, uh, even at my weight at 600 pounds. Uh, But I wanted to wait to increase my chances of success, and I wanted to wait to increase my chances of survival. Um, the more I weight I lost before we got that surgery done, the better chance I would live. Uh, but I hesitated because that guy, uh, taught me that I had to be mentally ready before I could do the work. And unfortunately my window was closing. I was walking around with a blood pressure of 210 over 120. I was ready to pop any moment. And that's with a bunch of blood medication in me. That's, and I was taking diabetes medication and I was borderline needing insulin on top of the medication. So I was ready to die. I was, I'm lucky I didn't have a stroke or heart attack already. Um, and so we had to get the surgery, even though I didn't think I was fully ready. I, I think, I think mentally I had more, more work to do. Um, but I, I glad I didn't do it when I was 30. I'm, I, the opportunity never presented itself, but if I did, I would have screwed it up. 
Um, I certainly haven't screwed it up and I'm not going to now because I'm finally in a very good place. So I, I think that's the one of the, you know, somebody asked me on stream the other day, said, my sister's eating herself to death. Like you were, how do I keep her from doing it? What can I say? And I'm like, what could you say to someone who had cancer to th convince them not to have cancer? Like you can't, right? She's got a disease, dude. She's got a mental illness that if somebody gets to three or four, 300 pounds, 400 pounds, 500 pounds, that's not somebody just like snacks, dude. That's somebody's a fucking problem. Right. You can try to encourage her to work on that problem and discover what that problem is. That's the best you can do. But there's nothing you can do to fix her, dude. She's got to do the work. You can motivate her to do the work. But even that, until she's ready, she won't do it. And that's the that's the problem I faced for a long, long time. Well, my wife intervened and YouTube intervened and the audience that's listening right now intervened. And and and, you know, Jay and the guys at Retropalooza were the first, one of the first cons I ever got invited to, one of the very first things. And Major Nelson and, and Adam, you know, Major Nelson from Xbox and, and Adam from uh, PlayStation, they intervened. And then when they did, it showed me, you know, and then even going back to Ray William Johnson or even the first person to click subscribe um, that built a life that was worth fighting for, you know. And I finally got to the point that I was ready. And uh, well, I'm glad, glad I'm, to do the I'm work. Really yeah, I'm really proud of you. Um, it's only going to get better and better from here. And every few months, you'll figure out something that you couldn't do before that. Now you're like, oh, my God, now I can do this. Yep. Now I can do that. And it, you'll you'll think about life before versus now, and you can't imagine it going back to the way it was. Exactly. You know, it, it's going to be a separation. It'd be almost two lives exactly. at that point. And, so. I, and I'll, I'll tell you this, man. I, either, my biggest issue now is the chronic pain stuff. And it's that my doctors have all told me it'll get worse before it gets better, especially with the back and the knees. They said, you've spent a long time slowly compressing them, and now you're going to spend a short time decompressing them. And so it's going to be much more painful during the decompression part than it was for it to be compressed. And that sucks, and they were right. It is very bad. But if that's the only thing that keeps me from jogging every day, it's the only thing that keeps me from being on a treadmill four hours a day, it's the only thing that keeps me from joining my local gym and hitting the pool, if you can figure out how to get me out of this chronic pain, you won't stop me i've sat on my ass for the majority of my life i'm done i'm done doing it i don't want to do it anymore the only thing that makes me do it now is the fact that i physically am in too much pain to to do those things but the day i'm not you you i'll never touch one of those fucking mark carts again i will never rent one of those things at a con again i will jog from one end of vidcon to the next i will carry my wife on my shoulders if i can you know? i remember um i remember when i finally the first time i started running when i started losing my weight in college and the, for the first two weeks or so, it was like hell on earth where I couldn't run a block and a half without my lungs feeling they're going to explode. Yeah. And I remember the first day when I managed to actually like run and jog a mile without stopping. And I was like, it was like an epiphany. It was like, oh my God, this is how I'm supposed to be. This, yeah, exactly. is, how my body, this is how my body is supposed to function. And it's the first time I'm ever experiencing that. Yeah. And it sounds like you're, you're moving towards that, which is great. And, and the pain, I, would, I, I don't know much about decompression of, of joints and how that works, but in theory, less weight on your joints, the easier it'll get. Yep. You know, right, right. And that's point. the hope. Uh, the, the good news is with the back, uh, we were never able to do the MRI again, so they don't really know what's going on back there. I was too heavy even for an x-ray, so they have no clue what I've done to my back yet. Um, me and my doctors are waiting till I get under 400, which is pretty close now. I think it's about two months away. So probably nice. sometime in January and February, we will uh, be able to finally get that MRI and finally get the x-rays and finally figure out what's wrong with my back, and maybe there's a solution. And if there is, all my Twitch streams are going to stop being video game streams. They're going to be workout streams. We're going to do them live <laughs> from the, the swim 
swimming pool and it's just going to be awesome. I'm just going to, I just can't wait. I just can't wait. Well, I, I'll, I'll see you at a future convention. We'll go down to the hotel gym together and, and yeah. walk on the treadmill. Let's do that. Yeah. Me, you, and we'll bench press Billy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Not that people need to know, but, but Steven, where can everyone find you on Twitter, on YouTube, and on Twitter? Uh, you can follow me at youtube.com slash boogie2988. Again, you might know me better as my character, Francis. So you can search Francis on YouTube. You'll find me. I'm also on Twitch TV, twitch.tv slash boogie2988. I have a website at boogieplays.com that gives you short links to all this stuff, and including a merch store. Um, and, uh, probably my most active place on social media is twitter.com. So twitter.com slash boogie298. Great place to hear me whine about stupid shit all day long and post <laughs> pictures of my dog, my adorable little dog. You guys want to see Sammy here real quick? Hold on. Sammy? He's, oh. he's grumpy right now because oh, he's sleeping. Look at that little guy. Yeah. He is, uh, <laughs> he's super sleepy right now. So he's super grumpy. But I just wanted to show him off a little bit. All right. And I'm Pat, I'm Pat Contra. You can find me at on Twitter and on YouTube, Pat the NES. And um, I will say, if you don't know Pat, you really should get to know him, man. He is I, – I do love your podcast. I do love your work. I love your channel. The book is fantastic. Again, by the way, I do recommend that immediately to anybody who's watching this. But oh, well. that said, uh, Pat, I, I'm so glad we got a chance to talk today. I've, I've loved talking to you at Retropalooza. seems like we never got a chance to just sit down and chew the fat, so I'm glad we got to do it today. Hope we do it again soon, my friend. And you can find the book at ultimatenes.com. Yeah, I'll plug it real quick. Thanks so much, hey. Steven. You are we'll welcome, see you later. Thank you. Before I go, let me tell you about That's It Bites. Now, we all know That's It Fruit Bars, That's It Veggie Bars, the healthy, all-natural snacks that don't have any preservatives. They're non-GMO. They're low-fat, gluten-free, vegan, etc. But now there's That's It Bites. These are delicious dark chocolate-covered fruit truffles. The one in my hand right now happens to be apple and mangoes. The only ingredients here, apples, mango, and dark chocolate. That's it. Nothing added here. Again, no preservatives, gluten-free, vegan, non-GMO, low-fat. They're only 150 calories in a serving, and that's filling a full serving of fruit as well as a tasty chocolate treat. Go to that'sitfruit.com and enter code not common and you'll save 10% off your order today. Again, 150 calories only. It's guilt-free for a snack and dessert, and it will fill you up, believe it or not. I have one almost every day, and that's all. You know, instead of ice cream, I'll have a that's it bite, and it's healthier, and it's a full serving of fruit. Goes great with wine, makes a great addition to a cheese board, lunchtime treat. Grab and go snack, midday snack to tide you over between meals, whatever you want to do. Again, go to that'sitfruit.com, use code not common with checking out, and you'll save 10% off your order. They're also available at CVS. That's it for this edition of the Not So Common Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please think about subscribing on your podcast platform of choice, whether that's Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Store, or whatever you use to listen to them. You can like the podcast. Spread the word via social media to let others know how much you enjoy it. Finally, if you want to help directly support me and the Not So Common Podcast, please consider signing up for my Patreon at patreon.com slash Thanks, and I'll see you next time.